When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, here we go. We are live. All right. Awesome. Dudes, ZDog MD and Dr. Angelo DeLulo. Say some words to trigger the camera, Angelo. Hi. Hi. Nice to see everybody. I am excited to have Angelo back. We've done series of shows on awakening, present moment awareness, non-dual realization. There's all kinds of catchphrases and slang for it. But today we're here for you guys to take all your comments. I'm pulling up your comments now, pulling out the pop-up chat. Ooh, I got to click one thing for locals, publish, and we're good. Let me make sure that goes through. Oh yeah. All right. So now we got everybody and people are here. Sassy T, Peter Stewart on from Ireland. What Woo! do you know about the Irish, Angelo? Love it. I've, I've been to Ireland. It's one of my favorite places in the world. I agree. Uh, I went to Dublin and had like the best time ever. I was doing a talk there in this like ancient theater and it had all this history. And then I show up and I'm like, let me tell you about Hell 3.0. And I thought I was just going to light on fire. <laughs> um, so let's see here. People are asking vaccine questions. No, sir. We're not talking COVID today, right? I mean, what do you think about COVID, dude? Um, I guess I'm just kind of uh, over it. Yeah. I think we all are. So this, what we're going to talk about today is stuff relating to this idea of finding out what our real identity is, in a sense, if that's even the right way to talk about it. I mean, how do you, how do you think about this to get us started? Um, it usually starts with some sort of a, a prompting um, in your life. So many people I talk to describe um, their past as sort of not fitting in, not really, you know, being able to, to exactly address what it is that hasn't felt exactly right for them in their life. Um, and then somehow or another, they come across a book or a talk on awakening, on non-dual realization, and something clicks. And they don't know what it is often. It's, you know, I get this so commonly where people will say, I don't know what it is you're talking about. I still get it. I get it. these comments on my videos all the time. Like, I'm not sure what it is you're talking about, but something in me knows that this is what's important to me. So, it, you know, it's so, it's so weird because since we did that series on awakening, I've gotten so many emails and you have too about from people saying exactly this. They say, I don't know what it was, but as you were talking, this thing shifted and I felt something that I can't describe. And I, 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 it felt real and it felt like something from childhood and there's all these different stories about it. I mean, what are they, what are they experiencing? Well, so when I point directly and I talk about uh, non-dual realization or I talk about unbound consciousness, ultimately I'm pointing to a more primary experience of identity. So we take our identity to be a collection of thoughts, beliefs, memories about who we are, uh, the things we talk about, the things we communicate to one another about on a day-to-day -day basis. So we take our identity, our identity to be that. Um, but it turns out if you're willing to investigate in a specific way, you'll actually start to touch into a deeper identity structures. Mm, so these deeper identity structures, this is, 
and, and you've done some videos on your own site and I put a link here to how to get to all your stuff and your book, Awake, It's Your Turn, which got me introduced to you and, and everything else is history. These deeper identity structures are interesting because it seems like we, we take ourselves to be this, this human body separate from other human bodies, separate from everything else that's in this <laughs> world. So different objects in space and time and so on. And there's series, whatever the plural of series, I guess it's series. There's a series of investigations that you can do just looking at your own experience in this moment where you can start to investigate Okay, well, so in my experience, what about this identity actually can I find, right? And that's kind of the the starting point, right? Yeah. So you you talked about separation or the the sense of having boundaries in your physical experience um, at a deep stage of realization that actually dissipates or goes away. But one of the first things you usually investigate is the nature of identity within thought, or the nature of thought itself and consciousness. Consciousness being that part of us that seems to be doing the thinking. So often that's where you start. So when you say seems to be doing the thinking, this is very interesting. Um, there's a part of us in our experience that feels like the thinker, right? That the, right. the agent, the doer, the, the little mini me behind our eyes that is making everything happen or is thinking the thoughts. Mm -hmm. And it turns out you can actually look for what that is. And that's when things get, kind of interesting in your direct experience, yeah? Yeah, so <clears throat> thoughts are an interesting thing in that we spend most of our day engaged in thought. Some estimates are 70,000 thoughts a day, but just depends how you define a thought. But clearly anyone who's willing to self-reflect for a few moments will see that there is a almost constant stream of thoughts in the adult brain, in the, in the adult mind or experience. And yet, how often do we actually stop and look at what is the mechanism of thought, whether they're voluntary or not? What is the, the point of thoughts, how important they are, what it's like to not have thoughts or spend time without thinking? And most importantly, who is it that's doing all that thinking or who is it that's aware of the thoughts? So the, the first sort of big step in this process of realization or the process of awakening is what I usually just call first awakening. And that is when it's becomes exquisitely clear that the sense of being the subject, the thinker, the the me, is in and of itself not separate from the entire thinking process and every thought you've ever had. But this isn't a conceptual understanding. This is a sudden shift in perceptual experience. And so you experience yourself as a sort of infinite thought space. So this, this idea of this shift like you said, because I can conceptualize all day about, oh yeah, of course there's no me in my head having these thoughts because that anatomically there's no such thing, right? It, it, the brain is a distributed network. It's generating this weird epiphenomenon they think called consciousness, although I have thoughts on that. And so conceptually I can understand, oh, you know, thoughts are probably just happening in this sort of space, but that conceptual understanding is not awakening. Awakening is where you actually experience an experiential shift where it becomes absolutely evident that what you took yourself to be, this thinker, is just made of the same stuff that the thoughts are made of. It's all one sort of substance. Yeah, or am I misunderstanding? Yeah, that's a really good way of saying it. But um, in the beginning of what you said, you mentioned that you don't want to conceptualize this. And that's 
really the slippery part of this first part of the process. It's very easy to understand what I'm saying. Well, it may not be easy, but it's possible. You can clearly understand it and make a mental model of it. But the one who is making that mental model and is aware of it will still remain hidden in the view. So the subjective view is that which you don't see. We, we assume it's there. We assume we know who I am. Like, we assume we know who we are. But if someone really asks you, well, who are you? What do you do? You give them a list of facts, which are thoughts. But I'm not asking who you are in a list of thoughts. I'm asking who you are that's aware of those thoughts. What's, what is the subjective pull in the thinking experience? That's where it's very hard to look. And there's very uh, sneaky little ways of inquiring to get a, a practitioner to look there. But it's very slippery. It actually takes quite a while to really get, in, to really get the sense of what we're talking about, that the, the subject of thinking is itself continuous with the entire experience of an external world of everything you've ever thought, all the problems, relationships, experiences, all of it is continuous with, at, a, at the level of identity, the subjective pull of the, of the thought process. And when that is suddenly experienced as one, it's a tremendous shift. It's a, it's a huge release. It feels like a weight you've been carrying around for years that you didn't know you had is just gone. And you, there's, there's some sort of litmus test sort of features to this, but one of them is it's self-validating. It's clearly more real than what you used to think real was, but in a way that you can never explain. It's, it's the most obvious thing in the world. And so that's, that's what it is to suddenly discover the subject that seems to be always doing that thinking. So, and, and th this can, again, this can sound very radical to people who haven't touched into it experientially, because again, conceptually, that's one thing. Oh, everything feels like one. Yeah, of course we're all contiguous. But, but when you actually touch into it and you, you actually refer to the substance that seems to permeate everything as one thing. So in other words, the, the, the felt sense, the felt sense of a thinker, the subject, it's not when you look for it, you realize it is exactly that a felt sense, a, a, a constellation of tension behind the face, the image projected onto your face of your face staring out at the world, this idea of a you thinking stuff up, acting on the world, et cetera. But when you actually turn attention from thought, which is a kind of appearance and consciousness, to look for what's thinking, you start to realize, wait, you can actually look and go, oh no, that's actually not a me because it's just a pattern of energy. That's not a me because it's an idea. That's another thought. And you keep looking, you keep looking, you keep looking until there's nothing but the looking. And, and that then kind of seems to generate this self-sustaining, self-validating experience of pure isness. I mean, how, how, do you, how, do you, how do you talk about that? It becomes hard for me to talk about. Well, I mean, the way you just described it is actually really good. And the, the, one of the keys I want to point out about this is that uh, as we de-identify from thought, um, as we search for that subjective pull or the sense of I or the sense of I am or the pure sense of I am or what is my true identity, as we search for that, we're, we're de-identifying from thoughts. But you don't realize that's happening until it all hits you at once. And once the, once the identity has been disentangled from the, the 
subject object thought structure that's when you suddenly realize something that is unspeakable you can't actually talk about it but it's very real and it really does happen this does happen to people i see it again and again and again so when that happens you realize it's not about thoughts it has nothing to do with thoughts it's the, the release is being released from the binding to a conceptual identity that you, you get completely released from that or you see that you actually were never that that the, all that movement of thought was just sort of um, a distraction it was it was the way the attention was habitually being pulled into a certain way of perceiving inside consciousness and suddenly you realize you're all a being it's pure being it's that's that's the probably the best word for it. it's just being so so pure being is this conscious experience of just that just that mm -hmm. and the idea of the self that we think we are seems to me to be like that hall of mirrors of reflecting thought where attention kind of gets stuck and then attention almost views out from that perspective of a subject and it turns out it sounds to me like awakening is the shift where that's disrupted and you see it as it is and it's a transformation of identity like that yeah yeah you were trying it's as if you were trying to take yourself to be that apparatus of constructing thoughts and constructing I, uh, mental identities you were taking yourself to be that without even knowing it without realizing it and when that is disrupted as you said or when it stops however that happens then the the experience of being is seen to be it is radical but the other thing that's funny about it is it's perfectly natural every single person listening to this is experiencing it right now it's not something you're not already experiencing so this is this is very paradoxical but when you knowingly experience it as at the level of identity it's a very different thing it feels like you're remembering something from almost before childhood it's it's um so primary so it's more real than real it's very clearly home so the first step of this isn't as much a de-identification from a self it's more like finding self in everything or experiencing the self as one whole complete but boundless knowing of being and all those words i just used you wouldn't you wouldn't be thinking those words to yourself it's it's a it's an instinctual knowing so the words we're using are, you know, awkward at best, but they do point to a possibility. And by pointing again and again and again this way, which is what I do all the time, I do it in the book and I do it in various ways, something will wake up in, in people. Something will go, oh, I know what that is. And I know how to orient to it somehow. Or you'll learn a, a, a inquiry technique and you'll start to orient to it. And as that happens, it comes forward in your life. The other, possibility, the other possibility is you'll hear this and you'll say to yourself, that is the weirdest thing I've ever heard. Or you'll feel, it'll feel threatening almost. It'll feel uncomfortable. You'll feel an intense emotion. Or your mind will just completely discount it. It'll be like, oh, that's nonsense. These, these words don't make sense. And that's, that's perfectly fine. In fact, I would never push somebody who has that reaction because it's not something they're willing to, to investigate in that moment. And, and this, we're talking about identity structures. So I wouldn't recommend it to do it like on a whim or to do it out of just intellectual curiosity. I recommend doing it if it's the most important. If it's the most important thing to you, um, 
or if you're the, 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 the deepest yearning in your life or in your being is to get under suffering. That's, that's the reason to really start investigating this. And, and I, that's a key point because you have to care deeply about this on some level. It may not even be a conscious level, right? It could be a, a deep unconscious drive. I think initially that's how it started for me. I didn't even know this was something I was interested in. And then I had these shifts and I felt it and I was like, wait, this is what? And then the more I learned, and of course the learning can have a double-edged sort of sword, especially for someone like me who tends to conceptualize and intellectualize stuff, because then you're thinking about it so much. Whereas in fact, what you're trying to do is look at the space in between thoughts for where that sense of being seems to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. There, there are a couple comments here that are interesting. Uh, Chris says, you know, he had a friend who described the same realization, but it was after a hallucinogen. How do you think about that, these triggers for this kind of uh, uh, um, realization? You know, it, it can start in many different ways. It's not terribly uncommon to to have a like a hallucinogenic experience and then something starts to kick into gear or starts a cascade or gives you a taste, an experiential taste, not an actual awakening, but a taste of it where you know I've, I've touched into something more real than real. And, and, and you know instinctually that it's, it's possible to embody it. It's, impo it's possible to open to it more. And that can happen through, I've, I've heard it in so many different ways. It can, it, often it's through tragedy, through the loss of a loved one, through um, mental, uh, I'm sorry, a, a, like a serious illness, like a medical illness. Um, sometimes it happens completely randomly. Sometimes it happens by reading a certain book or listening to a certain person talk, a video, um, but it, it, the, the key to it isn't how it comes about or what triggers it. The key is that you feel it. You feel something that's just, it's just, a, just a little beyond the, the usual human dimension. I have no other way of saying it, but it's, it's undeniably different, um, beyond. So, so actually let's, let's dive into that a little because that beyond the human dimension, I think that's a great way to describe that sensation because when I touch, when I, when I do inquiry where I'm looking for the self and I'm watching thoughts and I'm starting to touch into the space between thoughts where it is just awake space without a thought in it, um, it's, it's very quiet. It feels like a flow of, attention without any content. So attention is moving, but there's no, there's no object in it. It's just awakeness uh, perceiving itself in a way. And that will happen in between thoughts. And then something kind of interesting happens where my heart rate goes up. I start to increase my ventilatory rate. There's a bit of fear and tension. I can feel like bodily, like the muscles tensing up. And then thoughts start to intrude and go, you know, you may want to shelve this. This is fun. You're a little bored now. Go watch TV or go check your email. What's going What's going on there? So identity is tied, as I described earlier, our identity initially is tied into thoughts. Whether we realize it or not, it's entangled in thoughts. Um, gross thoughts like facts about ourselves, um, our history, memories, and very subtle thoughts like the dualistic experience of separation of I'm here and there's objects out there. That those are also thoughts. They're just very subtle thoughts that don't don't really come into play until later stages of realization. So um, our identity is tied into thought. So when our identity starts to, to become disentangled from thought, 
the body mind has no way of t- interpreting that except for death or danger. So it will mm. literally feel like it's being threatened. The good news is it learns. So going through that experience several times, sooner or later, that that physiologic fear reaction usually just stops. So I, I coach people through this all the time. I talked to somebody about this literally yesterday. Um, and when you get to that place, I usually just say, it's fine. You know, notice if there's thoughts about it. And the thoughts will always be worst case scenario. I'm dying. I'm going crazy. I won't I won't make it through this. Right. And and by, hopefully by the time you've gotten to this point, you realize it doesn't matter what the thought is. The thought could say I'm the king of England. It can say I'm dying. It could say I'm, uh, you know, I'm enlightened. It doesn't matter. It's just a thought. And so you can recognize that those are the thoughts. The physical experience is a physiologic reaction. The body feels the way it feels. The heart rate's up. The, you know, I can feel the tension in the body. I can feel whatever. And when you recognize that, you see, oh, it's literally a physiologic or a physical fear response. And you can usually just stay with it. And, you know, it's it's the release of epinephrine and norepinephrine in your blood. It's, it's reasonably short-acting. Catecholamines don't stick around for three hours straight. But it'll be an intense five minutes. And often you can just kind of wait it out and it'll just calm down. Or you might back off or you might get, you know, back into the mind identified again. And then the next time you approach this, this threshold, it will be less or not at all. You may not have any fear response. So I just, I just encourage people, just keep going back there. It's fine. Just see what's happening. Be clear about what's actually happening. Um, and don't get yourself wound up in your mind about, you know, all the fears. Usually that those are barriers usually you've gotten through to get to this place where you've, you've started to believe the thoughts, you know, oh, I'm going to go crazy. I'm going to abandon my family, you know, whatever. And then once you've moved through those and you realize, oh, those are just more thoughts and things get quiet, things get really quiet. As you described, it's just pure subjectivity in a sense. It's pure, a sense of pure awakeness or alertness with no specific object. Once you've gotten to that place, then the body will, will react. And that's what you're talking about. So, but again, it's just another sort of fear barrier and, and you can easily wait it out or go through it. Now, now, okay, so we're going to circle back to what happens when you do this. In other words, you're there in the space between thoughts. So Angelo has a great video on his YouTube channel, Simply Always Awake, called Unbound Consciousness, about how to actually practice this. He also talks about in his book how to do this. Um, So there are techniques for, okay, well, how do I get to that space between thoughts and stay there? And we'll talk after this about what happens if you stay there. (laughs) So what's the point of being in the space between thoughts as kind of the sense of being, what happens. But before we do that, we had a good question from, I think it was Scott who said, listen, I got bad tinnitus. Like when I try to practice, it's just so distracting. I just hear the ringing in my ear, you know, and how how do you deal with that in the context of this? You're trying to pay attention to this, but there's this happening. Um, Notice the thoughts that say, I don't want this. That's the key. Mm -hmm. And when you notice those thoughts, recognize often You'll see the thought or you'll see the thought arise. It says, oh, no, here it comes. Here's the tinnitus. It's going to distract me. And then the hidden thought, the subjective pull, the the view you're looking from is the one that says, and I don't like that thought either. Yeah, that's how that's how this subjectification works in the mind. We, we keep distancing ourselves back from things as if we're we're um, holding distance from the thing we fear. And when you trace it back like this and you finally just come to that place that just says, I don't even want the thought that says that the tinnitus is happening now and you can fill in the blank of tinnitus with the clock ticking, the dog licking itself, the, you know, my, um, the, the tingling in my foot, the pressure behind my eye. Like, I mean, I've heard every version of this and I've felt every version of this. So I don't, I don't want to minimize that experience because 
obviously it's distressing, but the key isn't to make the experience go away because clearly you really can't. It's it's there or it's not there, right? Uh, in that moment, what you can do is look for the resistance patterns. And often the first thing is the the um, the label. There there's that thing I don't like. Then the the hidden view, the hidden thought or belief is the one that says, and I don't even like to be aware of that. I don't like that this is happening right now. And then what happens is you recognize, oh, that's that's actually one thought. Who is that referring to? And you can rest there. You can give that thought permission to be there. You can. It's like giving the resistance pattern permission to be just what it is right now. So we don't need to resist the resistance pattern and just say, I'm okay with not being okay with whatever experience I'm having right now. And, and that's where I'm going to stay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back into the, the belief thought that's the most intimate to me and accept it as best I can in the moment. So, so it's, it's actually shining conscious awareness on something that was hidden mm-hmm. that you're automatically identifying with. So, mm-hmm. and this, this, is a, this is actually a really powerful way to look at that because so many people complain that when they meditate, they're so easily distracted and so on and they get annoyed and they have to have perfect silence and it has mm-hmm. to be exactly just so. And what's interesting, and I've had to learn this, I learned this from your book actually, that it is that, pattern of thought that's generated from the original stimulus that may be sensory, it may be uh, it, it may be a visual stimulus, it may be an auditory stimulus. It's one of the senses, right? The five senses. But immediately, almost, it seems almost like Velcro, they're concurrent. Mm-hmm. As that tinnitus, that ear ringing starts, the thought is wrapped in it right away. Ooh, tinnitus, oh, I don't, that's gonna distract me. And then the deeper underlying belief that is not as conscious that, oh, I don't like that because even that, I, I shouldn't be even having this thought. It it, does that be, sound yeah, about It shouldn't right? be there. It's, a, it's just a, a resistance pattern. The th- I also want to point out something specific about tinnitus. So there, so with, um, when the mind gets very calm, so if you're doing sustained meditation and especially after non-dual realization, which is a deeper stage, but with that, you actually recognize the brain filters out a lot. So it filters out a, um, a hum in your ear that's there all the time. So I actually think for a lot of people, tinnitus, they're actually hearing what most people are filtering out because I hear it all the time. Like right now, the, the sound, the, the ringing in my ears is about as loud as everything else in the room, if not a little louder. And that's natural. It's there all the time. They actually call some spiritual traditions teach you to meditate on it. It's called the nada. Yeah. So, so your ears are actually your cochlea or your, you know, whatever, your, the neurons are making that sound all the time your brain's really good at going not important not important so it filters it out when all of a sudden your brain stops filtering you you hear everything like it's crazy how much you can hear it's really wild and one of the things you hear is the hum that's there all the time usually by the time you've gotten to that you know you're you're like full on with meditation and retreats and you're all about like deep samadhi and once you start to hear it you're like oh i'm hearing the knot i love it you know but it's often a slow transition over year a few years between being annoyed by sounds during meditation to just being completely raptured by sounds during meditation, including the baseline hum in the ear. There's other physical experiences that are like that as well. The visual field is really interesting when it comes to non-dual. We're talking about a deeper stage now, but with non-dual realization, you see, you, you realize very clearly that as much as the brain filters out sound, it actually filters in a lot of the visual field. So it actually makes things look very solid that aren't solid at all. And it's when, when you when you realize non-dual. <laughs> so sometimes this happens very quickly to people, like all at once. They just go from being a subject in a world of objects to literally experiencing everything as interconnected without any bounds at all. 
it's it's actually quite an adjustment. Like you you bump into things like you there's a wall there and there's not a wall there at the same time, and you're literally aware of this. It's it's very very obvious. And you but you can also see how the brain is putting it together so that you can function in an environment. So you learn to like navigate having both of those at the same time. But but with the visual field, it's it's there's a, there's a lot less there than you than the brain makes it look like there is. So it's almost like visual snow. And then visual snow is another thing that some people get out of the blue when they're not doing any kind of practice. And they some people don't like it. They're like, it shouldn't be there. There's something wrong with me. But it's often very reassuring when you realize there's nothing wrong with you. You're actually seeing the way the visual field looks. And op- neuro-ophthalmologists will, will say the same thing about visual snow. So visual snow is another one. Like, I can see a very sparse visual experience right now. Um, and I can also see how the brain's putting something in front of it to make it look solid and continuous. And I can see those simultaneously all the time. Just like the sound, I can hear the, the humming all the time, but there's, n- there's no resistance to it at all. In fact, it just feels, it actually gets intermixed with the other senses. So it's like synesthetic. So I can feel it in the body and in the, the sound fields and the visual field as well. So, 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 so okay, oh, there's so much there. And so you guys starting to get a sense of, what the deeper levels of realization are. So first you kind of wake up, oh, this is not my identity, but then it, the rabbit hole goes deeper and deeper because you start to directly perceive, it sounds like, raw sensory information and without the perceptual thought filters and constructs of distance, time, shape, et cetera, that the brain constructs, but you can actually see how the brain constructs it. So kind of, it sounds like you can simultaneously see both, yeah? Yeah, yep, you can. Yeah. You, the thought, the thought uh, sphere or the thought realm feels almost like another sense to you. It's just a different mm-hmm. sense. And so you can see how it needs to be utilized at certain times and other times it doesn't. So if I'm driving in a busy situation, I'm, I stay really focused because it's, it's, it is easy for me to kind of not to see things deconstructed. It's not hard to do. And if I'm sitting meditating or just sitting on the couch with a dog or something, it's, it's very enjoyable. But um, but if if I'm driving or doing something, you know, or it does require depth perception and stuff, I actually focus to make sure because, again, you 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 can easily just see that non-dual experience. It's not you're not seeing it. That's the weird thing. You're intermixed into it. There's there's not a you. The the non-dual experience is the whole sensory field replaces you, like you disappear as a subject in a world of objects and reappear as the environment. It feels like that. It's it can be very startling if it happens quickly. For a lot of people, it happens slowly and progresses over time, so they they have time to acclimatize to it. But if you don't, um, it, it really can take a while to acclimatize. So, you, you know, there, there, there's, I mean, again, that's four hours of conversation drilling into what you just said. But I'll, I'll just simplify it to this, um, and then I also want to follow up on the so quick quick thing, the tinnitus thing. So I've noticed. So I I'm the same way. If I pay attention, I've got raging tinnitus. When I don't, I don't. And actually I've meditated on the tinnitus and it actually, it starts to modulate. It becomes all that sound of ringing, can't really describe it, becomes the entire universe if you pour your attention into it. And it sounds to me like that's touching into what that experience of becoming the sensory field seems like. But one thing you said, and you can follow up on any of that, but one thing that you said was you have you have to focus in order to get regenerate those thought structure things to, you know, if you're driving or something, it sounds like those take a lot of energy and actually the relaxed natural state is one of this unbound, pure, non-dual experience. Yeah, does it feel like that? 
Yeah, I wouldn't say it requires necessarily a lot of energy, but it does just focus. Just just a sort of reminding to keep attention in that, in the consciousness constructs in a certain way. It's not something you have to think about because you acclimatize to it over time usually. But it is, it does, it just feels a certain way. Whereas most of the time there's no need to modulate your attention. Attention can just be wherever it, wherever it is. It's fine. And even attention turns out to be a thought. But this is deep, this is deep stage realization. This is after agency is not there anymore. So. So even attention, okay, well, this I just have to ask you about. I should, so I should also mention one other thing. Yeah. I wanted to say one other thing, but we were still talking about the um, this, the tinnitus, and um, and I wanted to speak a little more widely about things that we find uncomfortable in general in life. So a lot of this sounds like it's all about certain kinds of awakenings, experiences, and realization, and so forth, and, and that is what we're talking about. However, this does spill over to life in very practical ways. And one thing that's very interesting you find after after awakening and once things start to deepen, um, especially with a certain shift that has to do with equanimity, what you find is that the sense of being a self, a, a distinct apart self, a self apart from everything, is largely kept alive moment to moment by what you relate to. It's a relational experience. So, And the way you relate is you say yes or no to everything. I, I like it, I don't like it. So we're walking through our environment. We're picking and choosing all the time going, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. We're pushing some things away up here. We're, this is what does require energy, this, this kind of um, push-pull experience. So, and and we're, we're saying yes to some things and no to some things. And some things we're, we're, we're saying no to in a very strong way. But what's so interesting is it, over years of observing this, you start to realize it's actually reasonably arbitrary. It, it doesn't make a lot of sense what we decide we do or don't like. In, in, in these intense ways, and they'll change throughout our life. We'll notice, wow, that used to bother me, and now it doesn't. And now I'm, now I'm suddenly annoyed with that. Why is that? Well, there is a why to that, but it has to do with the, the sense of separate self, trying to keep itself alive by what it resists. What it turn, what's interesting is when that stops happening, that's when most, most of the sense of suffering is gone. And this, the sense of uh, frustration, the sense of impatience, the sense of pushing and pulling on life pretty much goes away at that point. But the reason it goes away is because we're not pushing and pulling on anything. So whatever is ha- we take our reference for what should be happening from what is happening in the in the sense field, in the the literal sense field. And and there's such a deep peace in that. There's such a joy in just noticing noticing that what is happening is the only thing that could ever possibly be happening right now. I mean, plans can be made and so forth, but they're made right now. But in in this experience of immersion, there is only what is right now. And it's very obvious and there's nothing that needs to push or pull on it. And so what we find out is all of those times that I didn't like people, experiences, sensations, all those things I thought I didn't like, it wasn't anything about the objects. It wasn't anything about those experiences or the people. And it really wasn't anything about me. It was about a relational habit that I had that I had had that I learned from other people that we all teach each other all the time. And we actually talk about it all the time. And it seems so innocent, but it causes us so much suffering, right? Desire and aversion. So to put it like a Buddhist way, it'd be desire and aversion. It's the constant sense of always judging everything, pushing some things away, pulling some things closer, giving ourselves a sense of control. But unfortunately, that sense of control that's based on that is directly tied causally to the sense of being out of control and helpless, which we don't like. And it's like a slinky, right? Walks downstairs alone in pairs. It just goes one after the other after the other, right? Belief, doubt, belief, doubt, control, 
helplessness, control, helplessness. Those are, those are the side effects of that intense pushing and pulling we're doing. And we're not even actually doing it on the external world. We're doing it up in thought. So that's why this first shift we were talking about earlier is so important, because as long as identity is entangled in thought, the, you, you won't even be able to receive this. Once it disentangles from thought, you have a good shot at disentangling all of the rest of this relational self that feel, keeps itself seemingly alive as a suffering self by what it relates to all the time, moment to moment. Wow. So that's the basis of liberation is the release from that cycle of grasping and aversion that is a thought-based construct that you cannot hope to release yourself from unless you first release yourself from the identity construct of being that first, then the deeper levels of realization where you actually have to face your shit, right? Mm -hmm. And go, oh, look at all this unconscious stuff that's coming up now that I can't hide from because it's right there and I'm looking at the resistance pattern instead yeah. of hiding in it. Um, and, 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 you know, and, and one thing, another last thing I wanted to say about tinnitus, because it seems to be a, a fertile ground of discussion, I've had a few people now who have had COVID vaccine, maybe a couple people who've messaged me and said, you know, I've got this tinnitus after the shot and uh, you know, it's driving me crazy. And what's interesting is if, 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 they'll, if you question them, they'll say, well, you know, I, I, I've had it before, but you know, I just, I hadn't noticed it and it came back with a vengeance. And what I suspect is their attention is now looking for something that's happening in the body after a shot because the perception is something's gonna happen. And now they're paying attention to this and it's becoming you know, annoying to them. They're, they've got the feelings about it, the resistance to it, and the perceptual belief now that, well, the vaccine now caused this tinnitus. So it, it's really quite interesting how the mind can work with that and how it might even relate to placebo and nocebo effect. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. for sure. Um, let's see, so Manda Reggae says, mindfulness is the practice of focusing on the here and now rather than the past and the future, meditation helps to free you from your thoughts. It's not spiritual. How do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, it just depends what you mean by spiritual. So I'm I'm pretty um, uh, I'm, I'm pretty loose with terminology for for actually a really good reason. I think, and that is what I, what I'm concerned with is people actually waking up uh, waking up to the deeper truths of what they are. And part of that is having an understanding of the way that ego structures work. Ego structures co-opt everything. So any terminology, any term that's used consistently will become co-opted. Any pattern of teaching that's used consistently will be co-opted. So I tend to mix my, the way I talk about things, the angles from which I talk about them, I tend to mix those up on purpose, sort of to keep pulling the rug out from under the, the ego structures because it works. So um, as far as the term spiritual, I don't care. I, I use it sometimes and sometimes, sometimes I don't. I can tell you from my experience when awakening happened for me years ago, right away there was it didn't feel spiritual like I, I i it didn't feel like what i had imagined spiritual was before but of course i couldn't have imagined before what this was because it, it was more real than what i had been experiencing before what i did realize is no terms apply to this spiritual non-spiritual yes real unreal yes i mean it, this is so real is there's no point in talking about it at all or, or putting any term on it um with that said the term spiritual or spirituality is a very loaded concept, and some people relate it to, to established religions or, um, or uh, new age or the all, who knows what people are associating with that word. So to me, it's just a, an extra word that's not really that necessary, to be honest. I, I don't typically use it. 
Um, but I don't have a problem with it. My, my, what I'm really mostly interested in when I'm talking to somebody is, is what are they actually going for? I, I, I want to sort out for myself, and I can do it pretty quickly when I'm talking to someone one-on-one. Does this person actually want to wake up? If, if that's what they're interested in, great. If that's not what they're interested in, that's fine too, but I'm not going to talk to them about awakening because I don't want to destabilize them. So I don't really care what terms they use. People talk to me um, who have a background in Sufism, Christianity, um, who, ha- who are completely atheist, who are Buddhist, who are um, sort of from the Advaita side of things or Neo-Advaita. Like I talk to people with all different kinds of belief systems, and I'm never, I don't care what their belief system is. It's not about belief. It's about direct experience of reality or nothing else to me. So, yeah, generally I agree with that statement she made, but I also don't really have a preference to use that term or not use it. And no specific term to me. Um, hey, sorry to interrupt this episode. It's Dr. Z. Just a quick pitch here. If you can just leave a review and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, it helps us a lot. I also want to hear what you think about this episode when you're done listening. Hello at ZDogMD.com. It's the best way for me to hear your voice because the emails come right to me. And we don't have a comment section on most podcast platforms. Maybe Spotify has one, but nobody else does. So it really gets your voice involved on episodes, especially that don't have a video. And the third thing is if you want to be a part of this community and support the show, join our supporter tribe, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. You can join on YouTube, Locals, Facebook, Instagram. You get live videos with me where we're talking about these things in depth, uncensored, and your comments are fully incorporated as in real time. And then we do these Zoom meetings where it's really like a beautiful community where we share our experiences on the awakening journeyless journey. How are we going to transform ourselves so we can transform healthcare and education and government? Because those systems are epiphenomena of us. Until we wake up, those systems will stay asleep. They're just an expression of our own delusion. So being a part of that, it supports this message so others can hear it. And it also allows for our own collective growth. So we need each other in that way. It's really, really, really tightly interwoven and interdependent. That's it. Back to your regular schedule, regularly scheduled show. I don't champion any one specific term and I don't say, oh, I don't like that term. A lot of sort of teachers say that kind of thing. To me, that doesn't make sense. That just says you're entangled with terms still. I don't care about terms. I care about reality. You know, I care about what you're experiencing directly. So, um, yeah, that's kind of my take on it. You you know, and relating to this, that's great. I mean, what relating to the because it, 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 these words are very loaded. You know, I've had a lot of Christians message me and say, I don't know if I can, am I allowed to feel comfortable as a Christian exploring awakening? You know, and I'm like, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's actually, and there's plenty of biblical passages about it. It's it's really, you know, there's a veneer of belief and superstition we put on this with the words we use that have some baggage. And I like the fact that you rotate them. It's like rotating Vanco and Flagyl and just changing the antibiotics as, <laughs> as you start getting, you know, resistance to one, just switch to another one. Um, one. One word that's like that, that I think we can explore, because you did a video on this recently that I thought was very helpful, is the word presence. So it seems like when people, and that was kind of in the mindfulness comment that came up, this idea of presence is such a, the word itself can mean anything you want, but the levels of what it means are, can go so deep and so profound. When I watched your video, it really woke me up to this idea because there, and and I'll tell you my understanding of the levels from my end, and then you can, you can tell me your perception of it real quick. So there's the simple act of, oh, the present moment right now in time, 
I can pay attention to what's happening right now. I've got a cup. Yeah, I'm talking to you. That's cool. It's still in time. I'm just a little more focused on what's happening in front of me instead of just lost in thought of the future. But I still have the construct of time and space and all of that. Or I can go a level deeper where I'm settled back into the space between thoughts where it's pure awake being and it's silent but fluid but still and that's another level of presence and then it can go deeper than that so so throw me a lifeline brother <laughs> no you said it well that that's that's right on the money i mean so you know at first presence is a is sort of a reminder it's like it's almost a conceptual reminder that oh my gosh i've been daydreaming about my vacation for the last 30 minutes straight and now now i want to feel more present so what's going on right here you know you look around the room you feel into your body you take a breath and put your attention on it those are things that are happening here or you've been perseverating on some mistake from the past or a conversation that was uncomfortable for you know most of the day and then someone mentions presence to you or something and it reminds you and you say oh yeah actually it feels like a nice release to just let go of that realizing it's not actually happening now and there's just this environment this these sounds and feeling of being alive and and breathing in and out here now so you you can sort of remind yourself to bring yourself out of the 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 really intense or uh, ongoing time-based thought stream so that that's kind of one level of understanding what presence is really the next uh, big shift with we were talking about awakening is realizing that you are presence that it's it's but not not conceptually again it's presence and you are the same thing it's it's you experience yourself as the most possible present thing there could be because that's all there is and there are no thoughts modifying it anymore it's just this just this presence this luminous uh conscious space that is kind of everywhere and and that's a very wonderful place to rest for a while. Um, then you start to uh, uh, investigate whether you're, you like it or not. But uh, with some good pointing, you'll investigate what is the nature of identity then. Because if you if you feel like that's you, that's great. But the quite it still begs the question: Well, who are you, or what are you, or where are you? Right? What what is that? What is the nature of identity as as separation? Right? Because if there's a you, then there's a whole bunch of other yous around. Right? But something about the experience of that one singular consciousness, it's like, well, then where, where are the others? And where's, where's the sense of self? Like, where, where's that emanating from? And what happens then is the, the experience of presence starts to lose the experience of a personal identity, you could say. So you could say that it deepens, but it, I would say it sort of changes in quality. Um, and it becomes a little more thinned out, like something more like awareness. Um, and, and then there's almost this sort of formless awareness, this form formless, and it it can't be other than present because it's all there is. Yeah. And then someone will kind of hit you on the side of the head and go, okay, now you're experiencing the most fundamental duality. This is, I I stole that line from Adi Ashanti. He actually talks about this very clearly. Um, but that's exactly what's happening when, when everything is formless awareness and it will feel absolutely like that's how it is. And it couldn't be other to you. Um, then a, a turn has to happen. And this is the turn toward the, the next stage of realization, which is non-dual. And again, the, the, non-dual, the experience of non-duality uh, as, as realization, not, not a momentary experience, is 
as if you were experiencing yourself in a body moving through time and moving through your life and that ends and all of a sudden you're the whole environment but there's no you in it anymore it's just the environment operating doing whatever it does completely naturally spontaneously vividly alive that's a, a whole nother level of presence or not another level it's it's a it's a more clearly true presence and then you see that that experience of being as consciousness or as i am that you experience with your awakening that was like a reflection of presence it, it's the it's the it's the consciousness version of presence that made everything feel like consciousness but it's not like that it's actually just sound sensation then thought then taste then movement and the non-dual experience of those doesn't have a subject and object split in it. There's not, it's not happening either here or over there. It's, it's sort of both. They're kind of intertwined and you experience this directly. So that kind of presence is an order of magnitude beyond the presence of I am or the presence of pure consciousness. So, and it does go deeper than that, but to call it presence beyond that maybe even starts to lose meaning but it it, it is again it, yeah one single word or pointer can be a sort of catalyst that can break you through various levels of identity so uh, <laughs> i mean honestly just you describing it that way from my from my experience drops me through those levels of of presence in a way that's quite i mean it's experiential and it's you, I can't describe it, but you point to it that way and it actually transmits it. And I've had, like, like, like you said, it's not a permanent identity shift, but I've had experiences of what seemed really consistent with a non-dual experience where there, the self, what I thought was here has dropped away and it was clear that it was not there to begin with. And everything is just, how do you describe this even? It's happening by itself and it's self-aware, it's self-luminous, it's spontaneously occurring in a vast empty space and there's no one it's occurring to, it's actually self-knowing. And I, I don't know how to say it better than that. And in that, in, that rea in that realization is a complete sense of everything's perfect, a, a lightness of being, like everything is perfect, it couldn't be any way but this, and nothing is wrong at all, no matter what was happening. Um, so that, that's just my experience of having glanced on it. Yeah. I would say everything you said, uh, is very clear. The only thing would be that it's, that it's happening in a vast empty space is still the mind inflecting it. The vast yeah. empty space actually collapses into it. So it's, there's this term that's really great is from a Zen master named Dogen called total exertion. Total exertion means the whole universe is exerting itself to create this, this reality right now. These, these non-dual sounds, sensations, uh, seeming objects and they're not actually in space it's space is a they're they're like intertwined with space um but even the sense of space goes away that what non-dual really means is you stop experiencing space it, as weird as that is you, you you can you can experience it mentally just like you you can experience timelessness and still make a plan mentally but the experience you have which isn't you experiencing it, you've just merged into it, is timeless. And it's also not in space. So our language is simply not designed to talk about non-dual. It really isn't. 
saying a subject object goes away can kind of point your mind to what it is that goes away, but it cannot point your mind to what it is that's there when that goes away. But what's really interesting is you're experiencing that when you said you could experience all those levels, it's because you're already experiencing them. Everybody is. It's just that the, our mind is making so much noise and so continuously and with certain perceptual filters that are operating constantly when we're awake uh, that it, it, it evades our notice is one way of yeah. saying it. Attention is not, is not in a position to notice that. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, this lack of being able to describe it is exactly the idea of vast empty space. That was the best way I could describe how it felt that phenomena were were appearing on a almost like a like a a patina of nothingness. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know how to describe it. Yeah. And they were just it was appearing. But what was interesting is th- there is this sense of interconnectedness that they're doing what they do in some way that. When you said Dogen says in the universe is it's maximal exertion, it's like everything that's happening creates this. It has to because it's all connected. But I, I don't know how to really put it in words. Yeah, the 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 total exertion thing is sort of the crossroads between the non-dual experience and the experience of non-doership. That there that there's no one doing it, and the, the sense that there was someone doing it, acting upon reality, pushing and pulling on reality, but more importantly, controlling it somehow is just seen to be completely absurd in, in the way this is manifesting. So in that, with the sense of the, that there's someone controlling all of this, a subject controlling all of this, and also that there is no subject-object split anymore, it becomes extremely obvious that it's, it's just exerting itself. It's, it's just creating itself out of nothing. Okay, now I'll just ask some things that no one's going to be able to answer, but I'm just going to ask. So the, the, out of nothing is created these sense, these vivid sense experiences that are self-experiencing luminous phenomena that you can experience at those deeper levels of realization without filters. And then at some point, the effect of reflective thought and these perceptual filters comes in and creates the apparent existence of this, of this world where you and I are on Skype or Zoom having this conversation, how, how, is there an explanation for that or is it just beyond understanding well, why that would? Yeah, um, again, it's, these subtle points are important, I think, because we're talking about something very subtle. But um, I wouldn't say it comes out of nothing. It appears out of itself. That's the weird thing. And nothing and somethingness and nothingness are seen to be the way the mind is trying to put that together because it has to put it in time. It has to say there was nothing and then there's something. The, the mind needs to use a timeline, but reality is not a timeline. It's, it's, it's there and not there at the same time, literally. It's like super, it's super imposition. Um, that's how it's experienced. And so it feels a lot more like quantum superposition or to use a Buddhist term, dependently originated or dependently co-arisen out of itself and experiencing itself, experiencing nothing but itself, total exertion. And so, also never really appearing because there's not a moment before and there's not a moment after. So it's like there and not there at the same time. I know it's, so, it's, so, it's really hard to talk about, but it's, yeah. but experientially it's, it's so obvious and intimate. The intimacy is the word I use because it's so intimate. It's so like, yes, this is, I've always known, of course, this is the only way it could ever possibly be. 
course it's this. And it doesn't even matter what the mind says about it. It doesn't matter that it seems like not this for a long time for most people. Um, but the good news is because it is your true nature, it is the nature of reality, you can wake up to it if you want to. It doesn't mean you have to. Definitely doesn't mean you have You'll know whether this, again, this subject, if it's like, that is the coolest thing, I want to totally investigate it, great. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. These words make zero sense. Great. Perfect. Trust your instinct on this, for sure. Laura King says, uh, for me, it feels like becoming the singularity and just being there, I, in that moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. That's that's very much that sense of um, of I am or unbound consciousness probably is what she's referring to from, from the, my take on that. Mm -hmm. Unbound consciousness, yeah. Z, you are easily hypnotized, says James Riggs. So how much of this is hypnosis, Angelo, and how much of this is transmission, and how much of the, how does that work? Yeah, I don't, I don't even know how to do hypnosis. Um, Neither do but, I. Uh, yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't know how, I don't, I don't really understand what hypnosis is. I actually watched a hypnosis show in Vegas, um, Mark Savard, comedy hypnosis, and the last 10 minutes of his show, I've seen it like three times. The last 10 minutes of his show is probably the hardest I've ever laughed in my entire life. The things he gets people to do. So I'm watching this going, why are these people doing this? I don't, I couldn't, I, could, I didn't get, you know, and, and when I asked him, he's like, they want to do it. They just weren't relaxed enough. I help them relax enough. I can't get anyone to do something they don't want to do, um, which I find very interesting, but I don't know what the hypnotic state is. I don't really get it. Um, yeah, you know, sometimes when I talk about presence on the show and I get into a state myself of of what feels like intense presence, people will message me and say, "You know, are you know, is this like some kind of hypnosis because I felt myself relaxing and this sense of openness and so on and and I was like, "I'm not I don't know how to do hypnosis. I think it's just I mean, what is it? Is it pointing from that space? How do you think about that?" Um, well, I think humans are empathic creatures, so um, we're mammals, we're, we're social creatures, so we pick up the, the, from subtle prompts of other people, the words they use, the way they move, we pick things up so we can often empathize with how they're feeling. Um, if, they're, if someone's feeling restless, you pick it up right away. If somebody's feeling very relaxed, you pick it up right away. Um, so again, the things I'm pointing to are fundamental experiences of uh, perception without perceptual filters. And I already know everybody's experiencing this because everyone who wants to investigate it discovers it. And it's my moment to moment experience. So it's very clear that it's like that. So I think just talking about it definitely induces it in people. It mm. just does. And I can't deny that. So mm -hmm -hmm. Uh, let me take a look at some comments here. Um, does awakening Ali Asafi on Facebook says, uh, does awakening mean feeling of their uh, being there without any thoughts or feelings, just being in the present? Um, the, the key with awakening really comes down to identity. Um, you, you can have tastes of that pure consciousness or pure being where it will feel like very neutral, no thoughts, no feelings. Um, and you definitely are present because, well, you're always present. You've never gone anywhere, of course, but um, but you're not. But you feel present because you're not thinking about pasts and futures. So that is a, is experientially very close to what I'm talking about. But the shift in identity is again undeniable. When it happens, it's the biggest thing that's ever happened to you, bar none, for anyone who's gone through it. And I've seen many, many, many people go through it now, and it's mm. it's just undeniable. It's not like oh, I had this kind of experience. It's. I, I, I communicate with them in a completely different way. It's just a totally different way of experiencing 
everything. And and that that actually brings me back to what we were going to come back to in the beginning when we were talking about your unbound consciousness pointers, getting into that space between thoughts, trying to stay there, another thought coming, recognizing it, calling it out as a thought, letting it go, coming back to the gap. What what happens when you stay in that gap, or how do you how do you like to talk about that? Well, usually when somebody's gotten to the point where they can stay in the gap and they can sit in that unbound conscious state for some time especially once they've had that fear reaction you described, then they're on fertile ground for awakening. So usually at that point, once I've kind of got them through the fear barriers or just worked with them as they've moved through those fear barriers, I usually just say, there's nothing more you need to do right now. Look And, and keep looking for the subtle thoughts that are arising like, it's going to happen. Uh, did I almost wake up? Oh, I think I almost woke up. Or I must be close now, right? These subtle thoughts just keep sneaking back in, these 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 narratives that feel like not a thought, they feel like your voice or your own perception. So I usually just coach them to keep looking at those very subtle thoughts, but don't do anything else. Don't anticipate, don't try to make anything happen. Just stay in that thoughtless, unbound, conscious space. And if you stay there long enough, awakening happens. Mm. It just does. Mm. You know, uh, there was a there was a time early on, earlier on uh, in the year when I was very focused on that space and would be able to stay there and feel the intense fear reaction and even kind of slip into that space and just really feel it. It's almost like turbulence for me going in an airplane and just feeling everything kind of doing this and going, okay. Uh, and I remember I texted you and I said, hey, this is happening. And, and you said, listen, it's totally out of your hands at this point. You're just a, your ass is just a piece of clay. Just, just, just stay, stay where you are. And you know what was interesting is the mind came back and was like, okay, cool. I'll, 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 I'll do that. I'll do that tomorrow because, <laughs> you know, it, it'll, it'll be fine tomorrow. And then tomorrow, for whatever reason, causes and conditions, that what the mind was back in full force, actually angrier, more pissed off, more reactive, more, just crazy nuts. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, you know, in the sense of doership, I was like, well, me trying to awaken, I failed. I mean, I, do, do you see this kind of commonly? How do you think about it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's really common. So you could almost say that the, 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 the practitioner who's approaching awakening, who becomes interested, they have a genuine curiosity drive to awaken. Um, the first sort of phase is sort of a peripheral interest, like reading some stuff. You, you are excited about it. You're getting little tastes of it. Um, but it's like the gloves aren't quite off yet and your ego is pretty intact and you, you haven't really breached like the emotion barrier, the, the fear barrier, the, the existential terror stuff that you've been keeping at bay and you kind of know it. But then there's a threshold people cross where they're like, I don't care. I don't care if this kills me. This is what I'm doing. This is it. This is literally the only thing that's important at this point. And they start to see the, the, the facade of the way the ego kind of does you where it does things like that, where it's like, oh, this is the most interesting thing in the world. And suddenly it's like, I'm not interested in this. That becomes really interesting, doesn't it? Like, how can my mind change like that so quickly? Who, who's cooking the books? Who's in charge of that? Who, what is it I even want? Who, how do I even know what I want, right? Things start getting really strange when you start messing with identity. So at that point, when someone starts going through these, you know, intense emotions, the fear barriers, existential terror, then they're in really fertile territory. And that's when I'm like, you know, strike while the iron's hot, you know, just keep pushing at this, depending on what they're doing. They may be kind of pushing into like a one-pointed uh, mind space or 
inquiring or whatever, but I'm like, just really start digging in here. This, I mean, you're, you're in, you're in a good place and it doesn't feel like a good place. It feels completely disorienting. I know maybe the most disoriented you've ever been in your life, but that's how this goes. You're, you're in good company. Many people have walked this path before you. This is what deters so many people. You, you, it's, it's fun. It's interesting. You read about it. You hear about this stuff. You learn about it. And when you really start feeling that existential terror, you're like, nope, nope, not interested at all. Nope, no way. You know, you might come back in four years or never. Um, so I've seen that happen a lot too. But when, you, when you're really like, no, I'm not going to let the ego trick me again. I'm not going to fool myself. How have I been fooling myself all these years, right? This is where I want to go. And I know I can go there. I can feel it. I can, I've felt it multiple times. I've touched into this. And it's like almost like a stubbornness. Like you're like, no, I'm doing this. You know, I'm going to breach this veil if it freaking kills me. That when, when someone gets that kind of resolve, and it does come, it really does, men and women. It sounds like a sort of warrior drive or a masculine thing, but it's not. It's, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's a fidelity with your deepest truth, with reality. When that starts to come online, it becomes very powerful. It's like a fire starts inside of you. There's a um, Zen teacher, uh, Zen master named, um, I, might, I might get the wrong one. Um, Obi-Wan Kenobi? Yeah, Obi-Wan Kenobi famously said, uh, it feels like, a, oh, it's a Joshu, or Joshu. He said, it feels like a red, hire, red hot iron ball that you can neither spit out nor swallow. That's how it feels. Like you've caught yourself on fire. You can't go back because this fire is not a fire you can put out. And you have to go through the entire burning process. <laughs> and you're, you're like, I'm going forward or not. That's just, there's just no other choice anymore. So it, it almost gets to that point for some people. Not for everybody. This can happen a lot of different ways. But, um, but it becomes, I, don't, I almost don't want to use the word obsession, but it almost becomes an obsession. Like, because you see the tricks of the mind. You see it sneaking up on you and turning your head and going, no, you're not interested in that. And you're like, well, wait a minute. No, I am interested in that. What, what just happened? Like what, how it was like a, a sleight of hand trick your mind played on you. And this is what you've been up against your whole life, right? This is why you, you've identified somewhere that this is why I suffer. I suffer because of something to do with the way I'm believing these thoughts, this narrative, the, these ego structures that are somehow fooling me. Yeah. You know, you know, I, I, I really think this idea of self-hate, this idea of I hate myself, you know, a lot of people, especially high functioning people have this little component of self-hate. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes I see it in my, in my oldest daughter, you know, and I'm just like, oh my, it really feels like it's, it's, it's kind of like, what is it that you're hating exactly? What is it that you're, that you, that you hate? What self is this that you hate? It's this pattern of thought going to thought, going to belief, going to thought that creates this structure that we reify and call the ego. Like it's some, you know, thing entity, but but it, it's such a tricky bastard because it knows us, like you said in the book, it knows us better than we know ourselves. It's had millions of years to get to know us. It speaks in our own voice. When it puts thoughts in our head, it's I, 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 I didn't put the thoughts there. And it's exactly what you said. It's coming at you going, you know what? Mm, do I really want to mess around with awakening right now? Man, I got I got views to get on YouTube, dog. I got to go make me some videos. It, it's, it's horseshit, dude. It, but yet- there it is, and recognizing it actually is a step, but then actually actually doing something becomes, or relaxing that uh, and, and recognizing the belief becomes a little, a little trickier sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the ego's um, really good at the false dichotomy. It's based, like with the views, right? It's like, no, you either, it's basically telling you, you're either gonna decide to wake up right now, or you're gonna go do some work, as if 
waking up suddenly precludes like the rest of your life or something. But the point isn't whether either of those external realities are true. The point is it's it's like a magician that just knows how to get your attention. Once your attention's up in those thoughts, now you're like false dichotomy. Oh God, which one do I pick? Which one do I pick? Which one do I pick? And it's just laughing at you. It's got it's just like a magician that does sleight of hand. It knows how to redirect your attention. And that's it, right? Like all of that's a thought. All of that is a thought. You can't choose when you wake up. <laughs> but you but you can recognize the thoughts that are hypnotizing you. So if you want to talk about hypnosis, yeah. Thought is the ultimate hypnotist. Thought is the yes. ultimate hypnotist. There's, I have a friend uh, named Paul Hederman who does some non-duality talks. He's really, he's a really funny guy, really cool guy. He's in the Bay Area, and he used to, he's in the recovery community. He was an addict many, many years ago, um, and he said, I used to shoot cocaine into my neck, and he said, and that addiction is nothing compared to the addiction to self. Mm. He, he says self is the, the, the underlying addiction of all addictions, and he's right. Of course. I mean, if you really feel into that, mm -hmm. the idea of letting go of identity of me, of all the accomplishments or future accomplishments, because I'm not, I'm never there. I've never done it. Uh, it's so seductive mm -hmm. because it's constantly in your head. It's the voice constantly telling you these mm -hmm. things, you know, it, it, and then you think it's you. Mm -hmm. But what's crazy is when that relaxes and when you actually see it, you're like, oh, all this time I've been... <laughs> kind of foolish it's almost like a grief process you're like how was i fooled for so many years yeah the ego's best trick is telling you that your voice in your head is its voice it, it, it it's or telling you its voice is your voice basically it's the, the the belief that you have thoughts that you're creating that are about you and and, and you're not actually stopping to realize you're not in control of that though if you, if you decide to stop thinking for 10 minutes, can you do it? No? Well, then all of those thoughts are involuntary. All of the ones about you, right? The ones that say, oh, I need this, I need that, oh, I messed this up, I'm, maybe I'm a good person, maybe I'm a bad person, yada, yada, yada. But when we get into that entanglement of thoughts, that identity entanglement, it feels like our own voice. It feels like our own shame. It feels like our own self-hatred. It's not. It's, none of that's about you but you have to get to the root of what you are first to, to really see that. That's the freedom. The release is all of the conditioning was never about you. It's only about itself. And, and you know that in a way that's an absolution of doership, right? It's saying mm -hmm. this is not about you. There's not really a you that it's about, you yeah. know, so a couple, couple good comments here from, from people. Vicky Fielding uh, says, dude, is the ego the matrix? Yes. In a word, yes. Uh, so in my book, I, I describe this, that the movie The Matrix is um, a very good analogy for for this. Uh, and I think it actually goes back even farther. Rene Descartes made an argument in his meditations on first inquiry about um, the the evil demon. He, he came up with, he postulated there could be an evil demon that um, is basically just transmitting uh, events into your mind so you think all this is happening but how can you prove it's not happening? And it goes all the way back to Plato in the cave. You know, if you're tied to a rock and you see in the shadows, you don't actually know what's behind you that's being cast upon the, the, the rock wall. So um, we're, we're making decisions based on shadows. We're, well, we're, we're believing that we're making decisions based on shadows of what's actually happening behind us, right? That's why you have to get behind view ultimately. You have to get behind the formation of view and frame, uh, frame experience before 
the 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 identity really completely just drops out. Mm, ego is the matrix, and that that segues nicely into Kimberly Steele, who's a supporter on Facebook's comment. If the ego exists for the survival of species evolution, are we supposed to dissolve it into the to the extent of it awakening? This is the fear block for me. Yeah, I'm not sure. It's it's a really interesting question. Like the ego, as I describe it, is is a collection of uh, experiences, thought patterns, impressions, and so forth. So it's not like one thing that you can go into your mind and pull it out and go, "That's the ego." However, to it, it, pedagogically, it's a useful descriptor. Um, and uh, I, I'm not convinced that it's it, it's required for us to evolve because you can function completely normally without thought, without the ego structures operating. It's totally possible, and more and more people are. So it turns out it's actually maybe, I like how Carl Jung talked about it. He said that human consciousness is at an unstable level of um, evolution, and it's going to continue to evolve beyond this. So I think mm -hmm. the next step of evolution, in a sense, is beyond the ego. It's evolving to being knowingly presence, vivid, non-dual presence, without having to think about anything and functioning completely normally. Normally meaning you're functional. You can, you can work, cook food, have relationships, do things that anyone else can do um, without having thoughts at all. But you can engage thought for the use of creativity, planning, strategizing, et cetera. You can, but even even the planning and strategizing turns out doesn't require thought, which is really strange. It's it's hard. It's you, you. The problem with this is if I say that, the only way you could try to prove or disprove it in yourself would be to think about it. That's the trick of the mind, right? The ego is always like, "Oh, you need me. You need me for everything," right? But um, as it turns out, uh, a lot of that, or sort of all of it, just happens. Pretty spontaneous. Spo spontaneous there people, action. There are people we talked about aphantasia. There are people with aphantasia who are artists, and they don't. They can't imagine something to draw. They have to just use something. They look at something and they draw it, or draw something and then make modifications in the drawing. But they're using a, a visual image instead of a mental image. And aphantasia is the inability to create mental images. Yeah, it's it's mental images and or uh, narratives or like the inner dialogue. And 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 people do fine. They can mm -hmm. still. Yeah, so it tells you that what is the evolutionary role of reflective thought? I think, I actually think it's kind of a mistake. You know, there's there's not really, I mean, I don't, I don't think of it in terms of there's a creator deciding what to do, et cetera, but it's, it's just, a, it's like a side effect. It's like the appendix. You just don't mm. need it. Mm. Turns out. And it causes a lot of suffering. Because in, in the book, Reading your book, your chapter on thought was the first time I've thought about thought intellectually, like, and felt into thought experientially. And there were a couple things that stuck with me. One was your definition of thought, which I think is very appropriate from a practical sense. It's a, ref a thought is a reflection in consciousness of one of the five senses or of another thought. That's all it is. It's like this reflective thing. It's not the sense itself, and it's not you know, a thing in itself, but it reflects your senses. So a memory of a, of a sound, a memory of a visual memory, a mem an auditory memory, et cetera, or a reflection of another thought in this kind of mirrored-like way. Mm -hmm. And then the, the second part of that, the follow-up in the mind identification chapter was, oh, and it has two jobs, to get your attention, put your attention on that thought, and to direct your attention to the next thought. Yeah. And so... So that whole apparatus you're saying could just be an epiphenomenon of having 
this you know complex instantiation of consciousness that makes up humans? Well, I mean, experientially for me, I would say it is because it's not necessary. Mm. Mm. It turns out it's just not necessary, but it doesn't mean that um, there is adjustment to to functioning without the perceptual filters for sure. But um, but you can do the only th- the, the thing that I that I can't do that I used to be able to do is it's very very difficult for me to imagine like three dimensional space. Like I used to be able to imagine my my environment around me in three dimensional space, like where the room is and all that. But I, it's, it's hard for my, I can't even really construct that in my mind right now, but Mm. I don't need to. It turns out I don't need to. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I do wonder whether thought makes us think we need it more than we actually need it sometimes. Um, you know, we, this whole idea of overthinking, maybe any thought, (laughs) because, because I think there is, I can feel into this idea that, that things happen spontaneously but like you said, due to kind of use the term, the Buddhist term dependent origination, it's, it's like everything in the universe is determining why this is happening right now. Yeah. How, I mean, how, how do you think, how do you think about that in terms of spontaneous action? It's the, so the, the spontaneous, as I described earlier, I mean, it's, it's, it's just self. So it's just self obvious. So mm. the, the problem is I can't give you a conceptual model for it because it has to be experienced directly. Mm. That's basically it. It's that or it's that or nothing. This, I mean, this I can, is the I can tell you it's it's like a, a a particle and an antiparticle coming into being at the same time and dissolving back out of being into nothingness, and say that the whatever it is that that's coming into being out of and returning to is emptiness, and the apart the apparent particle and the apparent antiparticle. This has all been proven, of course. Those are dependently originated. So I could say that there's a physics model for it, but someone listening to this, all I can tell you is you can experience it directly for sure, but there's no way I can describe it to you because it'll, your mind will catch that description and turn it into something. It's not because it's not a description. It's not a conceptual model. It's nothing you can think about. It's not a paradigm. It's, it's too paradox. It really is. It's too paradoxical for the mind Mm. to get itself around it because it really is everything and no thing at one time being and non-being at the same time and that sounds like just nonsense it used to sound like nonsense to me the heart sutra is full of these contradictions and it used to sound like nonsense but i remember reading it and just going i know there's something here it doesn't make a damn bit of sense and it's frustrating it almost sounds like um nonsense poetry like children's poetry that's nonsense you know the fork ran away with the spoon It, it sounds like words strung together in a totally meaningless way and yet, with the Heart Sutra specifically, I would I would read it and I'd go, "There's something here. I know it's here, but I my mind cannot make sense of this." And what you have to finally realize is you have to stop referencing the mind to make sense of this. And when you do, holy shit! Like things look very very different. It it so the Heart Sutra for people who don't know is is a very it's a classic classic Buddhist sort of sutra passed on for eons and chanted in many traditions. And if you, if you, you can find different translations of it in English online, but it says things like, form is emptiness and emptiness is form. There is no suffering, there is no end of suffering. Um, these very paradoxical, and what I found, you sent me a recording actually of somebody chanting it. And what I find is every time I listen to it, again, it, it, it def- defeats the mind. The mind does not understand it at all and cannot. And if you go trying to, well, let me find a better translation and let me go dig into what the, here, oh, 
uh, heart sutra for dummies and you try, try to see it, or you say, no, it, that's not how it works. You feel it experientially as deep truth. And it actually is such that there's almost a emotional, physical response to it. When I listen to it, it's like a, a yearning or a, oh, that, yeah, that, I don't know why, but that, you know, like tears welling up. You don't know why you're like, wait, what? Mm-hmm. It's talking nonsense. Yeah. It's really quite interesting. Yeah. So one pointer I would give. So if anyone's listening to this, who's like interested in how do you tune into what we're talking about without concept, right? Because it's it's endlessly frustrating to try to understand this in concepts, right? It's it's endlessly frustrating. It won't work. And yet, if you have a sense that what we're actually pointing to is something real or possible for you, th- then this is the adjustment I would suggest. Just feel into this and and take your time with it and, you know, hold on to it. And over the next few months or something, if you return to it on occasion, it might start to make more sense. But look at it this way. When you reference the mind, when you reference the thoughts, the concepts, you're, what you're referencing is something uh, gross, something uh, um, sort of loud, something very solid that you feel like you can depend on that's, that's, that's logical and structured. Okay, that's one way of referencing your experience. That would be referencing thoughts or concepts, and that's fine. There's a place for all that, right? Now, if you want to know what we're talking about, especially with the Heart Sutra, you have to reference the subtle. That which is, you know it's there, but you can't tell exactly where it is. But you sense it. You can't tell exactly what it is, but you know it's there, or you trust that it's there. It's subtle. It's, you're not looking for some mind-blowing spiritual experience or, or a hallucinogenic experience necessarily or anything like that. It's not like that. This is a subtle thing. It's, it's your instinct, actually. It's the closest part of you. It's the, it's the most deep, uh, intuitive part of you. So that's where to look. And you don't look like, uh, you don't look in, in such a way that you're, you're like dissecting something like a scientist. And you don't look, you don't go in with a sledgehammer and try to you know, destroy your, your distorted beliefs. You just open to it. You just ask yourself, what is that? What is that subtle thing that's here? It's my instinct. I've, it's been here my whole life. It's always here. It's always awake. It's always aware. It's always looking through these eyes, but it's not something I can talk about. So the, the adjustment would be from the gross or the um, content laden thought world to the subtle, the experientially subtle. Like you could say senses are subtle, but it might even be a little more subtle than that. Like if you just put your attention in the sound instead of the thought, if you let the sounds in the room replace all the thoughts in your mind now, there's a subtlety that's going on there, kind of bouncing around there somewhere, right? You can't find it because it's not in one place. It's not in no place, right? So it's, it's a little contradictory or it's a lot contradictory. So anyway, if anyone's in, interested in this and, and goes, my mind just gets twisted up every time I think about this stuff, but I'm interested. That's, that's my pointer is look, look into the subtle and, and just be open to it. And life might show it to you in ways you might, that might surprise you in, in moments that might surprise you instead of circumstances that might surprise you. You know, I, I think when we started this, I was talking about people messaging me going, I don't know what happened, but I had this experience. I think there's some pointing there that that experience, like just stop, listen to the sounds in the room, let it replace thought what you just did. If you really feel into that, that, I mean, that that's it. It's this subtle, you can't 
it's ineffable. You can't really put it in words. And because it can't be put in words, it can't be measured, it can't be quantified, people will say, especially in my audience, there were very science-minded people, as are you, oh, that's woo, right? Well, that's just, if, it, if it's subjective, if it's an experiential thing and you can't quantify it or measure it, then it can't be scientifically valid. Mm-hmm. How, how, how do you think about that? And that, that, that relates to another question that somebody brought up, which is, can you do algebra without thought? Um, well, I'm not very good at algebra anyway, so I'm not really sure about that. <laughs> um, so the, it's a good question. How do you think about it? But it's, it's, it's fascinating how ingrained it is that we need to understand or know something. We have to think about it, right? How do I think about it? I don't think about it. I experience it. So the, um, the, the paradox, there's, there's something really important about paradox and everybody actually likes paradox. People like irony. What movies did we love? We love movies where you think you're watching one movie and at the end you're like, whoa, you know, Fight Club or The Game. Or these movies that are, you know, there's like, there's such a paradox to things. And um, Niels Bohr said it, you know, when, when we come in contact with a paradox, we know we're, we're coming in contact with truth. These are scientists, right? Um, the, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle was so weird that Einstein called it spooky. Oh, no, I'm sorry. The spooky action at a distance was quantum, quantum entanglement. Mechanic. But it was proven. Like, it's proven that that's a thing that actually happens. And so, um, spooky action at a distance. But he, but he, I think he trusted that it was real. He just pointed out that, yeah, to the, to the conceptual or logical mind, it doesn't make a darn bit of sense. Um, and yet, if you're willing to accept that things can be true that are paradoxical, you might surprise yourself with the, the fact that you can still use logic when logic is called on. And then you can use your instinct for the paradoxical when that's called on. And that might be the other half that you've been looking for. That's how I would say it. Yeah, so again, it's like not succumbing to the mind's false dichotomies that either or, mm-hmm. you know, you, you can't have yes and, you know, it's like classic improv stuff, right? It's always mm-hmm. yes and. Um, yeah. yeah um, let's see. Uh, Dickie Dallas says only people that don't practice Zazen say that Zazen say that kind of thing. You, you, you have a, a bit of a Zen background after awakening. Yeah. 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 I did sessions. I meditated quite a bit in, in a, in a Zen center. Um, Zazen meditation was probably the, uh, I've done countless amounts of meditation in my life, but Zazen is definitely the, the, probably the most numerically number of hours I've done meditation. It was Zen. Zen-based meditation. So, so tell me, because there's a type of zazen called shikanta zar uh, me- meditation, which in the book Three Pillars of Zen, which you cite in your own book, is one of the things you read that made you go, "Oh, awakening is possible." How about mm-hmm. that? Uh, ha- ha- it sounds a lot like the natural meditation that you describe in your book. Can can you kind of talk about that a little? Yeah, bit? you know, it's funny. Shikantaza is uh, associated with Soto Zen. Zen's kind of broken up into two, mostly two categories, but in Soto Zen, it's, it's emphasized and it's, it's, you know, just sitting. You already are Buddha nature. This is Dogen again. You're, you're awake nature already. Buddha nature doesn't mean you're a Buddhist and you don't worship Buddha. Buddha nature means awake nature is what you are. That's what, that's what you are. That's what we're talking about throughout this entire talk. Um, so sit and just recognize it. And, and Dogen also has this great term, practice enlightenment. He's not saying you go practice enlightenment. He's saying, Practice and enlightenment are the same exact thing, literally the same thing. So sitting, you are Buddha, or you are awake nature, or you are enlightened nature, or you are non-dual truth. So just sit. And that's you could describe that as shikantaza. 
Now, there are some nuances to how to quote unquote teach it, but it by nature, it's not a technique. It's a non-technique meditative uh, process or approach. So for me, what was funny is when I first heard about it, even though I heard all that, my mind still thought it was a technique. <laughs> I, I couldn't, I, I, without even knowing I thought it was a technique, I thought it was a technique until um, many years after I, I meditated, many years after I had been meditating, suddenly the meditating technique I was using in that moment just completely disappeared. And then meditation was forever different after that. It just was already happening. It's already happening. That is Shikantaza. And and it even after that, it took me a while to realize that's what they were talking about with Shikantaza. I'm like, oh my God. It, but it's so easy that it's hard because we're the thought world is so much about seeking and doership, doing, 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 how to do the next thing, how to understand so I can do, how to understand so I can do, so I can control. The thoughts are so constant that to sit down and try to quote unquote do nothing, well, you can do it. You can just sit there. But, but, where your identity is doesn't know you're doing that. Your identity is, is you're like, am I doing it right? Am I doing it wrong? Is this, is this proper shikantaza? You know, yada, yada, yada. And you'll try You'll turn it into a technique and you'll think you're good at it or you're better at it than someone else, or you'll think you're bad at it. At some point it just clicks and you're like, Oh, meditation is just natural. It's right here all the time. So there are many different ways you can point to that kind of meditation to natural meditation. Um, in my book, I just have one that makes sense to me. It's, I can really only define it mostly by what it's not. So um, for some people that works really well and easily and it works early on. For other people, it takes a while before it just clicks for whatever reason. And using something like a mantra or breath counting or even a koan can be a better way to meditate early on. That, 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 that yeah. And, and you know what's interesting is I think I'd messaged you the other day because I, I had had this sort of meditative experience where I was sitting and making nothing doing nothing in a state where attention was going where it would and just pure experience thoughts were happening, but I wasn't sort of caught in the house of mirrors. And I think I texted you, I was like, hey, this just happened. Is is that what you mean by natural meditation, shikantaza? And you were like, yes, yeah, sure sounds like it. And I'll tell you, it felt absolutely natural. Like, oh, this is our natural state actually, is to kind of be in this flow with experience and very present and not lost in thought and not trying to do something. And I had a guy on my show, Donald Hoffman, who's a scientist out of UC Irvine, talking about you know kind of his theory about the nature of reality being made of conscious agents and so on. He told me offline, and he said this publicly since on Sam Harris's show, that uh, his meditative practice came from years of having crippling anxiety, where he couldn't go to sleep and he didn't want to take meds. And you know he came from this very religious upbringing so he had this like kind of moralism baked into him where oh, you don't do drugs, you don't drink, you don't do all this. So he just could not, could not sleep. He started doing this meditation that he figured out. He just naturally stumbled upon it. And I said, well, what is it? Is it this? Is it, is it mindfulness? Is it Vipassana? Is it, you know, I'm going through all my spiritual catalog of, of garbage. And he goes, I don't know what any of that means. I don't do any of that. I, I, I just sit there and do nothing. I do nothing. I make nothing, I do nothing, and I do it for until my body tells me it's time to sleep. And I was like, shit, that sounds pretty awesome. It sounds like kind of what you're talking about. Oh, for sure. Yeah. No doubt about it, yep. Yeah, and he says he you, sometimes has to do it two, three hours, four hours a night to get to yeah. sleep. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it feels like, uh, one way of describing it is, it feels like up until that moment, you felt like you were a meditator choosing when to meditate and how to meditate. 
and that was primary and the meditation was secondary to you. And all of a sudden the whole thing flips and it's like, no, meditation's always here. And me feeling like a sense of a me that could do meditation just suddenly stops and there's only meditating happening. Mm. And that mm. happens whenever it happens. Very simple. Mm. Yeah. So it, it's almost like the, what, what's more real, the, what's more real uh, switches places. Mm. Mm. That, that feels right. Um, let's see, let's see, let's see, let's see some comments here. Kim Cabbage says, I focus on my nose. Mm -hmm. That's a meditation object. Um, Emily Anderson says, breath prayers work too. A repetitive breath prayer, such as Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, while inhaling slowly, have mercy on us, exhale. What do you think about meditative prayer? You talk a little bit about prayer in your book. Yeah, so um, when I talk about prayer, it's uh, a bit more like an intention, maybe, but but it's, it's also... Um, based on the, the the realization itself well let me say it this way it's 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 basically a prayer of surrender and mm. it's something like i i admit that i don't actually know what's real i know i have some beliefs about what's real maybe i believe in this maybe i believe in that i believe who i am whatever whatever my beliefs are but i'm willing to let go of those beliefs um to to really come in contact with truth with living truth whatever that is Maybe you don't use the word living truth uh, to come in contact with the divine. What's the most real? Um, I'm willing to go through what I'm going to have to go through and feel what I'm going to have to feel and let go of what I'm going to have to let go of to come in contact with that because that's, that's my commitment. And whether I like it or not, going through this experience, I'm willing to go through it even if I'm unwilling to go through it at times. That's, that's kind of the, the prayer I usually point people to when I feel like they have a um, – you know, they feel, they feel blocked by themselves. That's often when that's helpful. When it's like you can tell you're getting in your own way. You, you're serious mm -hmm. about practice or realization or awakening or whatever, but there's something in you that's getting in your own way and you know it, and you don't, but you, you feel like you're struggling with yourself. Sometimes that kind of a prayer can be very, very powerful. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, it may be time for me to start, start doing some prayer, which I've not done. <laughs> You were going to say something before I interrupt. Well, I was going to say uh, I I remember watching a video of somebody from Europe, and she um, was interested in awakening from like a, a neo Advaita standpoint, Advaita Vedanta, like non duality, what more like contemporary videos on that sort of thing. And she said she I remember watching a video. She described doing all these different things, all these different practices. She was desperate. She she wanted any more than anything to be free, to be set free. Uh, and she said. She got to the end of her rope and she said, the last thing I could think of to do, because I didn't know what else to do, even though I didn't really, I wasn't Christian at all, is I, I prayed to Jesus to set me free. And she's like, and something changed because the next morning I woke up and I was completely free. And so who knows wow. how or why any of this happens. The, the, yeah. the, what needs to click for you is different for everyone. But I can Every tell you, person. everyone's different. Everyone is different. Some people need to pray. Other people... It's a very logical, deconstructive process. Um, for other people, it's totally spontaneous. Like for some, they don't intentionally engage this process and it just comes upon them. Um, so, so I always point people back to their own intuition. Juliet Pink uh, on YouTube and Local says, uh, oh, I like that. It's like giving up, like it is surrender, mm -hmm. that kind of a prayer. Th this idea of helplessness and surrender you point out in the book too. And actually- 
And then I do want to take comments from Ruth and Brittany on YouTube, on Facebook, who have some interesting comments. But this idea of just really saying, look, I don't know. It can't be known. Mm -hmm. uh, and releasing that sense of agency to try to know, try to control, try to understand, try to do, and just saying, I, I, I you know, Jesus said it on the cross, actually, I believe, right? I commend my spirit into your hands, God, something to that effect. I'm not a Christian, so I have trouble with the quotes, but something to that effect. How important is surrender to all of this? Uh, I th I'd say it's the most important thing. At mm. some point, it's the most important thing because, again, the the ego is what you take yourself to be. It is. It, it's the way this works. So um, how do you move beyond yourself? And whether you're Christian or you're Buddhist, I mean, in Buddhism, it's it's about the self-construct, ultimately. So how do you go beyond yourself as a self when you take yourself to be the self? It's tricky, right? It's it's subtle, or it requires a some kind of extraordinary sort of surrender. Um, but I would argue that at some point, and that first shift, that first awakening is the point uh, for most people, the, the big one uh, that starts this whole process going is is an act of surrender. But it, but in that in the way I'm talking about surrender now, it's not even something you can do. It's something that happens to you. You can be willing to be surrendered again and again and again. And at some point, it's like, it just happens. Something really deep lets go. Um, so it's, mm -hmm. it's very important. Um, helplessness is an interesting thing, right? We do everything we can to avoid the feeling of helplessness. All the thoughts, we're trying to avoid helplessness. Doership, the sense of, I'm in control, I'm making choices, I can plan everything. Like all of that is, we're, we're trying to avoid the sense of being helpless, which in a physical, in a physiologic way, it's very important, right? An animal doesn't want to feel helpless because it needs to survive. But this thing that's trying to survive in us, the ego structure, is, it's not something we need, but it, but it sure feels like something we need, so it will defend itself in that way. Um, so the, the sense of helplessness, when we finally touch into that, we realize what it actually is. It's a sort of acquiescence with all of nature. It's, it's the impulse of life itself. Because in one real way, everything is helpless, and everyone is helpless. We can't choose when we're going to die, really. Maybe we can sometimes, but I mean, even that's going to be conditions-based, what led us up to the decision or whatever, right? So, you know, so much of what happens, like all the functions of your organs in your body, like, are you really in control of all of that stuff? I mean, it's, it's all just happening, right? The earth is spinning, the earth is rotating around the sun, like, natural processes are everywhere we look, and we're not in control of any of it. But we want to think we're in control of our own destiny in a way that makes us feel like we're in control, but we don't realize the cost of that. Mm. Yeah, the cost yeah. is steep. Mm -hmm. It's steep, and we never look at the cost. Yeah, when we feel um, like we're in control, we're just setting ourselves up to feel out of control later. Exactly right. Um, Ruth Wright says, I feel I find myself more aware of the fact that I don't have thoughts when I'm not actively doing something. That didn't really come to mind until hearing these conversations. What is it? What is that thoughtless space? And do you think I should think about that more? <laughs> yeah, Paradox I would, say, right I would there. say don't. I would say don't think about it. But if if you're noticing it, that's great. Um, and if you're interested and curious, just sit sit with it. When it comes to you, or when you have a moment, just sit and just put your attention there, and don't try to analyze it. Don't try to figure out what it is. Um, but because, but let your natural curiosity just steep itself in the experience. That's how I would say it. Mm -hmm. And see what comes of that. And curiosity is a, is, a, is a key component of this. As you're sitting and exploring this, this moment, 
the it's I actually even prefer the term fascination to curiosity for me because curiosity always in my mind brings up the idea of verbal questioning. That's just my conditioning. But fascination is just like a ooh, 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 what is that? Mm-hmm. Um and well, it, it seems at, to be a, Yeah, look at it this way. Like, so do we really want to understand an experience or do we want to experience the experience? And when mm. we talk about something like this that's outside of our comfort zone often, our mind will sit there and go, but how do I understand it? How do I get my mind around it, et cetera? So let me make you an analogy. You go to the, say you love French food and you go to a, a, a you know, Michelin three-star French restaurant in Paris and you've been waiting for weeks to, for this dinner, right? You sit down, conditions are perfect. You, get to, you start on a glass of wine and then the waiter comes out and he says, okay, you have two choices. I can serve you this seven-course meal and you can taste everything, or I can have a guy come out of the kitchen and describe to you what it's going to taste like instead of eating it. Which one do you want? <laughs> it, it, to, to me, this, this what we're talking about is that's exactly what it is. You don't want to understand this. You, you might, part, of, part of us wants to understand it, but it's the part of us that wants to hold back. What you really want to do is experience it, right? If you've listened to this long, if you haven't listened to this long, you probably think it's the weirdest thing you've ever heard. But if you're still listening to this by now. You're probably somewhat curious. And all I would say is think of that analogy. Do you want to describe it to yourself or do you want to experience it? <laughs> yeah, it's funny. So Paul uh, Boulanger on uh, YouTube says, blah, 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 nature, quantum, blah, blah, blah. I mean, yeah. that's the thing. When, when you try to wrap an intellectual understanding around this ineffable stuff, that's what it sounds like. Exactly. Like, well, that, you know. Yeah. And that's why, yeah. you know, some people say there's literally nothing you can say about this that's true. And I, I would actually agree. But there, but that's it's not completely true because if somebody is inclined to, like, someone who said that is probably not inclined to wake up right now, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but if somebody is inclined to go beyond the intellect experientially, then sometimes the words can be helpful because the mail slot of information is the intellect. That's we, we take in information all the time, you know, in, in the form of cognitive beliefs so, and so forth. So so the communication in that form can actually be powerful if you want, if you're open to it. If you're not open to it, it will it will literally sound like nonsense. Blah, blah, blah. Quantum this, blah, blah, blah. Awakening Buddha, Jesus. Like it just sounds like nonsense. Right. Which to me, that's totally fine. If someone says that to me, I'm like, you're right. It, 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 don't even worry about it. Like this is yeah. not go play basketball, man. Go like. Let's go grab a bite to eat or something. There's so many ways to enjoy life. Um, but but if this is like, no, there's something going on with this this pointing and it's going on in me and it's been going on in me for years, that's interesting to me. Then 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 it's a different kind of conversation. But even then I'll say, don't worry about the words. It's not about the words. It's never about the words. It's not. I don't care for anyone to believe anything I say about this if they're interested in diving in. I care that they have good pointers so that they can experientially follow it down, follow their instinct. So in that, that gets to a, a comment by Melissa. And by the way, we should talk about nonverbal ways of transmitting this too. But um, Melissa Crotty says, there's something about the way you, that you speak to this. Uh, I've been really diving deep into this, but your words cause more emotion maybe. Thanks for planting the seed. H- how, do you, how do you think about that? Or what's the intuition on that? Um, so yeah, it's very common to, when you come in contact with unfiltered reality, however that happens, whether it's someone pointing to it, whether it's, you're reading a poem, whether you're walking in nature, um, or you just have a moment of clarity or, or even like, as I said, a tragedy in life often leads people to this, regardless of how you come upon it, 
um, there's there's often an expansion phase or a, a clarity. Something just feels like opening, deepening, clarifying. But it's almost always followed by a, a feeling of some kind of contraction or emotion, uh, sometimes sadness, grief. You feel like you're grieving the loss of your identity in a way or your beliefs or something. Often you don't even know what it is, but a, a sense of grief. Um, or sometimes it's a sense of interconnection, like you're actually feeling the physical embodiment of the environment, like a, a touching into non-dual, which can happen at any time. And it can happen to people who have never meditated at all. I've seen it, actually. And so um, it could be any of that. But but it's, it's very common to feel a sense of a, like a clear type of expansion. And then it's often followed within a few days by some like intense emotion. Yeah, that, that I've experienced many times. Uh, it, it, it almost feels like you're becoming unstable a little bit, but really it's, it is that sort of back and forth expansion. And then, oh, here's the underlying emotion that you were not, you know, connected with it. It, it, it happened. I told you the story when we had our first interview, when I read your book the first time I went to Napa and had this meltdown with like a flat tire. And, and then it just had, the, because I'd been having these expansive states reading the book and then everything like it's, it's almost like. Reality wants to remind you of the perceptual filters and all the unprocessed stuff that's keeping you in an identity structure that's causing suffering. And it's like, oh, but you forgot. Here's what suffering's like. Here you go. And I was like, ah! And the nice thing was, I just read your chapter on emotion. So I was like, what, what's going on here? <laughs> let, me, let me actually try to feel the raw underlying emotion. And it's always a, a layer. It's always like, well, I think it's this. I think it's frustration. But what's really under frustration? Oh, it's actually unworthiness, which is also shame. And shame has a kind of, it's almost like a vibration in your chest. It's like, uh, you think it's uncomfortable, but that's a thought. It's just a pattern of energy. And then you let, you just inhabit it. And it's like, oh, it's the best catharsis in the world because then you're, you're, you're suddenly better and you, and you're, you're, you've, 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 you're awake and you're like, oh man, that was, that feels so much better instead of just, oh, what is this shame? I'm going to call it frustration and keep yelling at this stupid tire and take it out on my kids or whatever it is. Um, so it's really quite a, quite a thing. Mm -hmm. I, I highly recommend it, but it is not comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. One of the, one of the things I, I kind of say, and I think one of the first chapters is be prepared to be uncomfortable. You're not going to be constantly uncomfortable, but you're going to come in contact with things you don't want to come in contact with that you've been avoiding actually. And it's just it's just how this goes. It goes like this for every single person that goes through it, w without it, without exception at all. So again, if 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 it's like if, you, if that hits you like oh that's nonsense, I'm not repressing anything, then don't open the door. It's fine. You don't need to dig into this. But if you dig into this, I say it for a reason. You're going to come in contact with intense things, repressed emotions, things you didn't know were there, all of it: shame, guilt, sadness, anger, fear. It just comes. So before I read Brittany Montgomery's comment, I'll follow up on that. So what's the payoff of this again? Why would we want to face these things that we've been conditioned to repress, deny, and project? Because you're in, not, nothing that I'm going to say to you um, would, would lead you to, the, to, to doing that. Only your own instinct. All I can really do is say, reflect, on your, re reflect inward. Does your instinct tell you there's something here? Or you think it's, if you think this is nonsense, great. If you think this is not nonsense and you know exactly what I'm talking about, then trust me, you can wake up. I've seen it again and again and again and again and again and again. People all, literally all over the world, 
all ages, young, old, um, you know, highly educated, not very educated, trauma history, no trauma history, um, skeptical. The more skeptical you are, the harder this is, to be honest, but, but, but skeptical people, logical people, very intuitive, heart-based people, conservative people, liberal people, anyone can wake up. I've seen mm. all, all those examples are people I've seen wake up. So, so that, that's the, the underlying message really is this can happen for you. You can do it if you're interested and it's, and you're serious about it. Um, but you'll yeah. go through some uncomfortable stuff and the payoff, I can't tell you what the payoff is. I'll let you discover it. And then you just message me and tell me what it was. There you go. That's, that's it. Br Brittany Montgomery says, last time I meditated, my brain literally felt like water ebbing and flowing inwards and outward, not a pulsing, but a flowing. Not sure what it was, but when you release control, allow and observe, there's endless possibilities. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's, that's unbound consciousness. I would even say if that happens again and when it's happening again, you might notice a subtle thought of, of brain, that this is my brain doing this, and then let go of that thought and see, what's, see where it goes there. And then you might even have a sense, oh, I'm, I'm the meditator experiencing this. Well, see, see what it's like without that thought. It, and it may just expand outward, inward, deeper, fuller, more intimate. It's like a Russian nested doll full of thoughts. And what happens when you get to the little smallest one and you take it out and there's, is there a point where you get to no underlying thought? And then what is that? Mm -hmm. um, there is, there can be a last doll. There is, you never know. Um, I'll use another quote from Adi Shanti because I really like him. And once he, once I heard him say, keep inquiring, you never know when the last veil is going to fall. Mm. Yeah. It seems like you can drill down almost, almost infinitely, but, mm -hmm. uh, so uh, Bina Ravi says, uh, I guess these guys need to listen to Sadhguru. If you want to know in simple words uh, what they're trying to discuss, check out uh, YouTube videos on Sadhguru. We are light beings having a human experience in this earthly plane. What's, what's your take? If, you're, if you resonate with Sadhguru, watch Sadhguru. Watch if you resonate Sadhguru, with Muji, that... watch Muji. If you resonate with Adyashanti, watch Adyashanti. I mean, it really just depends what you're, what you're after. I'm a, I'm a fan of Anna Brown on YouTube. You pointed me to her. Mm -hmm. She, and many, many, actually, it's funny, many in the Locals tribe, I was talking about her, uh, really glommed onto that. And we're like, this is great. Like, I love the energy that she has. Um, so there's all kinds of ways to point, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, Brittany Montgomery follows up. When it happened, I had a conscious thought of, holy shit, what is my brain doing right now? So I was aware in the moment. Thank you for explaining what that was. Yeah, it's interesting. It's like a thought about that. that that's a common experience that I have because let, let, you said it earlier, if you're skeptical, it can sometimes be harder. And like, I've kind of made a career on skepticism. <laughs> like that, you know, it, hardcore atheist, scientist, only later in life kind of opening up and going, oh, but what is this other side of things that's experiential, that feels as real as anything you can measure, maybe even more real? And how, how can I integrate that? And uh, again, then getting accused of woo and all of that. It's like, oh, it's, it's, this is my path, man. And it, it, I, you find yours. And believe me, I had to go through that phase of hardcore kind of reductionist, like everything is, everything is this, right? And, and consciousness is the epiphenomenon of all of this and forget, forget what subjective experience is because it's just an epiphenomenon of material. And I had to go through that in order to to be dissatisfied, <laughs> find 
keep looking for answers and not find them to then actually experience, use experience as a microscope, as the scientific instrument. So that was just my, that was my path. Everyone finds their own, right? Um, Emily Anderson calls it the Matruska brain, the doll within the doll within the doll. Mm. That's great. Yeah, that's, that's excellent. Um, let me go on the YouTube side here. Um, yes, says Annette uh, Liebecker, keep inquiring. Yeah. Um, you got to, and, and what, what, what is this inquiry? Um, what's this inquiry? Like when people say inquire, you have a chapter on it, you go into detail, but how do you like to talk about it? Well, it actually kind of goes back to the prayer we discussed. It's, it's a sort of act of surrender because when you ask a question and you've already sort of looked into why you're asking it and you're not asking it, it's not, it's not like asking a question about vaccination and then purposely Googling somebody who has the opinion you have about it, right? It's not that kind of question. I mean, asking a question that you actually know you don't really know the answer to, right? Uh, you're like, I know there's something, I feel there's something here, but what the heck is it, right? Or what's this thing about my identity? Like, I've, I've always felt like I had a threatened identity or I, I felt I had to defend myself and I don't know why. Like, who am I, right? If that really hits you, then start asking. So it's, it's a, it is an act of surrender. And it's also, if done right, it points your attention past the intellect. Again, mm -hmm. back to thoughts, but it, it points the attention past the intellect, if done properly. So there are many different ways to inquire, but the first way typically is self-inquiry. So you're actually inquiring into what is the nature of you? Who are you? Who are you actually? You know, and then again, you may immediately go, well, I know who I am. I'm so-and-so, and I was born at so-and-so. And I'd say, great, those are thoughts in your head right now, right? Who's aware of those thoughts? Can you tell me about that without telling me some memory of yourself? Right? Because if, if it's like, let me put it this way. If all of a sudden your hippocampus got got a lesion in it, you had, you had a head injury, your hippocampus stopped working, you wouldn't be able to tell me where you came from, maybe, right? Depending on, on your, how your brain's functioning. You may not be able to tell me your name, where you came from, or your history. Does that mean you're not there all of a sudden? Obviously not, right? So who are you? Who are you really? And it's, it's strangely enough, one of those places we never look. As you mentioned, and it, it always surprises me a little bit, but it was, I was the same way. As you mentioned earlier, you're a physician, you're, you know, however, in your 40s, whatever, and you had never really thought about what thoughts were, and yet they're everybody's constant companion. All day long, the voice you hear the most is thoughts. More than your loved ones, more than your own voice, thoughts, 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 thoughts. And yet somehow we don't stop to really think about what they are. It's very interesting. The self is like that, the sense of self, right? Yeah. What is it? Yeah. What is it? And you can become really curious about this in a certain way and uh, direct the self-inquiry inward to try to find, actually find it, locate it. Um, and that can be a very powerful way to, to get this process rolling or really to, to wake up the, the, that first big shift. Um, mm -hmm. And some teachers like uh, Ramana Maharishi, uh, um, an Indian teacher who's very well revered, um, very simple guy, didn't have, didn't call himself a guru, didn't have followers, didn't, you know, I mean, he had followers, but he didn't endorse any kind of teaching or lineage or anything like that. And he just said, ask, who am I? And he, he said, he told people how to do it. And that was it. It was a very simple teaching, but it's also a very powerful teaching. So that's, that's the first form of inquiry, usually a self-inquiry. Mm, but even, mm. even using a koan in Zen, like Renzai Zen, the first koan would be, what is Mu for most people? That's, an, that's a question of inquiry. Mu is 
you, you can't even get a toehold on that one. You can't even start to imagine what that could be. And yet there's an answer to the question. There's a very real answer to that question. And when you, when you believe that, because you've seen people break the koan, you've seen what it looks like when somebody has an awakening around you and you can feel it. Now you're like, wait a minute, what's going on here? There's an answer to this question. So you start boring into it. What is Moo? What could it possibly be? Yeah. That's, that's important. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just talking about this stuff causes these very subtle shifts in, you know, perception and, and the sense of tapping into that thought-free space, which in your Unbound Consciousness video, um, you took two different approaches to that, arriving at that space that were not necessarily this type of inquiry. It was this different type of inquiry is looking at thought. One being, oh, you know, if, if I can actually really dive into this thought, step up to it like it's a movie screen, see what it's made of, really feel into it. What is the, this, this visual image or this uh, a little piece of language, whatever it is, and then try to then turn it back and go, well, what is it that's, that's having the thought? And look for that and realize, oh, that's made of the same stuff. That was like one approach. And the second was just keep recognizing thoughts. Like, oh, that's a thought and discard it. And that's a thought and discard it and keep going until the space in between becomes longer and longer and longer and just stay there. Am I doing that justice in terms of a, a Cliff's Notes of that video? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are, there are a lot of nuances to this. For instance, uh, you know, you, as I kind of started describing earlier, you can just answer the question to yourself like, oh, well, I know who I am. I'm a, I'm a male and I'm so-and-so age. And then the next question is, what, but who's aware of that? Who's the one that's referencing that thought right now? And again, you can remind yourself, what if you couldn't remember that? Does that mean you, you suddenly aren't there? Do you suddenly disappear out of reality? Well, no, intuitively, that doesn't make any sense. I know I'm here. Great, well, let's, go, let's go ahead and look and see what it is that's here. What is it that's aware of this thought? And right away, your attention starts going to this very strange place. And you can't find it. You can't find it. Outside of a thought, can you find yourself? No. And yet, wait a minute, but aren't you here you do experience yourself right now, don't you? Yes, right? This is a major conundrum. Experientially, it's very obvious that you're a you, and yet you can't find it. Isn't that really strange? Yeah? So that's what self-inquiry is, and you can just keep just keep looking at it, just keep looking, spinning around it, trying to take that backward step, look behind the view, try to look and see who's actually aware of the thought. And if a thought comes and says, I am me, or whatever, oh, there's another thought, though. Who's aware of that? When those thoughts stop coming, you don't cease to exist. You're still aware. There's still something that's aware. But what is it? Can you find it? Is it you? That, that, that's self-inquiry. You just got to be kind of ruthless about it and be really honest with yourself about what you're actually finding. That, that, that's the trick. Because you can self-deceive that you found something. Mm -hmm. But then any, any even subtle degree of inquiry on that will be like, no, that's a thought too. That's a belief structure. No, wait, keep looking, keep looking, keep looking. Mm -hmm. that, well, that's yeah. why it can help to have a, have a, like a Zen teacher or something if you're working yeah. on a koan, because you'd say, well, I'm formless awareness. Great. There's a thought that says I'm formless awareness. Now, if that thought subsides, did you, did, did formless awareness subside? Did you, who's aware of the thought right now? Yeah. Right. It's, <laughs> it, it's just that kind of a thing. You just got to keep looking until it clicks. It's more than a and, click. It's something definitely shifts. And, so. and, and the, the funny thing is the reason I laugh when you say that is not because I'm intellectually laughing at the, the paradox of whatever you said. It's that I experience looking for that. And 
the looking is a, is fascinating. Mm-hmm. It, just in itself, there's a fascination with the looking at like, oh, yeah. oh. When when Brittany talked about this idea of this, you know, this flow of sloshing around, that's kind of sometimes to me what that experientially what that looking feels like. It's like this movement of attention without any thought in it. Looking and then a thought comes and you're like, ooh, where'd that come from? It it almost comes, it comes out of that same isness, for lack of a better word, and there it is staring at you. And then it dissolves into the same thing and you're like, wait, but then what's witnessing that? And then you look that's back right. and wait, that's the same shit. Mm-hmm. Um, that's it. So so the and the the only thing I want to point out is about this now, for anyone who's listening who's actually interested, which there might be like one, maybe. I don't know how many people. People There's four hundred and four hundred odd people watching on between the two platforms the whole time. Oh, cool! So, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, if you're actually interested in what we're talking about, the the real key here is if you've gotten this far with the self inquiry and understanding what is it that's aware of the thoughts, you can't find it, but you still feel like a you, don't you? You still feel like you're there, don't you? Keep looking for it. So, if you've gotten that far, if you can follow us to that, then my my next piece of advice is very simple: don't overcomplicate it. There's nothing magical about this. You can actually just keep looking. And what often, the the mistake I think people mostly make when they do this is they get to that thoughtless place where they're like, oh, whoa, there's nothing there. And yet the looking continues. You can just stay there. But what most people don't do is they don't stay there. They, they Then they start thinking about it and they intellectualize. No, 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 stay there. Keep And if you start to intellectualize, just go right back to, wait a minute, who's aware of that thought though? Who am I, right? That thought's not defining me because before that thought came, I was here and that thought's going to go away and I'm still here, apparently. So let's go ahead and look and find out what that is. That's all there is to this. It's very, very simple. Very simple. And it's it just, it's a matter of time. Just keep looking, keep looking, keep looking. And, and you know, one, one of the things I've found in my own experience is that there are so many different pointers to that and that there's expecting one single pointer to work for you every time is a fool's errand. It's fresh every time. So you almost have to approach, and you say this in the book, actually, you almost have to approach every session of doing this inquiry absolutely fresh. Like it's a blank chalkboard. Like you've never done it before. You've got no past, no history, no spiritual baggage. You're just, this is it. I'm doing this now. And that may mean a a pointer that worked before has no meaning. It doesn't resonate at all to you right now. And that's why having a little bit of exposure, that's good. And, And then the other thing is repetition. So You've told me the same thing like a hundred times. You've told others the same thing a hundred times. And it sometimes it'll point you right there and you just need to hear it to get, to kind of subvert the mind and get it looking in the right, get you looking in the right way. Um, so don't don't give up. Don't don't go, oh, this isn't working. It's never gonna work. No, 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 no. If you really want it, if you're fascinated, if this is what's important to you, you just gotta keep doing it because it's mm-hmm. easy to give up. And giving up is the way the mind kind of comes in. It's it's fine, man. It's fine. Just give up. Just you're bored of this. Boredom work. is a thing. It's not working. Not working. That's it's not thought. working. Not and you're looking like an thought. idiot. Yeah. Yep. Yep. But well, how, how do you how do you think about boredom, dude? Because this is one thing that happens to me. I get in that thoughtless gap, and my mind starts going, "Dude, you're so bored here. This is boring. You don't want this. It's all thought." Mm-hmm. but I don't, it's so hard for me to resist because then I'm like, well, I know how to fix boredom. <laughs> Let me see what's going on on Twitter. And then I'm, then I'm done. Do you just keep, you just have to be ruthless, huh? What is boredom? Hmm. When you tell yourself you're bored, what are you referencing? 
So it's a sense for me, let me really feel into this. So when I think about boredom, first of all, there's the there's a feeling actually, like a sense tone of discomfort. Like it's a discomfort, like something is not comfortable here and I need to relieve it. And the mind then seems to arise and say, dude, this is boring. There's nothing going on here. Like do something, go do something. Mm-hmm. That, that's how it is for me. Yeah. I mean, I think that's great. I, w- I would just say, you know, approach it from, from that standpoint where you deconstruct it a bit and go, actually, I'm uncomfortable mm. or I'm restless or I'm irritable. That's a feeling. But you still may distract yourself and you may do it a hundred more times. And, and you know, it, it's just how we are. We, we will often distract ourselves, but at least see what's really happening. Boredom mm. doesn't make a lot of sense. It's, it's, it's more like I'm uncomfortable and I want to not be uncomfortable. So I'm going to move my body. I'm going to, you know, you may be feeling restless. So things like that. I would, I would look into like the actual physical experience of it and then try to put your attention down into the experience. Mm. And then when you mm. do ask yourself, is there anything resisting the physical experience? So find the uh. resistance pattern. There's something that's saying no to the experience and the mind is just summarizing it as, oh, I'm bored. And that, that's kind of an overarching uh, nominalization of the, the momentary event that just gets attention pulled down the thought stream. Yeah. Oh, that, that's, that's a great pointer. I'm going to try that because that, that, that's really what it is. It's, it's the aversion to sensation that is just arising, and there's an aversion that arises that is, it's, a un, it's, a, it's a kind of a hidden kind of phenomenon that's just wrapped right around the sensation. It's like yeah. immediately. You could actually yeah. ask yourself, like in the moment, you go, is there a difference between restlessness and boredom? Because mm. they sound very different. But what you describe sounds a little more physically like restlessness. You know what I mean? So it's something you can just look into. Just again, yeah. inquiry, what is this? What is the feeling? Where, where do I feel it in the body? Can I pinpoint it? Can I go to mm. exactly to that place where I feel it? Is the mm. sensation moving? Is it stagnant? What are, the, what are the beliefs about it? If I don't move, what will happen? You know, just that, mm. that kind of a thing. Mm. Man, that's, those are great pointers. Dude, we've gone for an, two hours. Oh, wow. Live. Yeah. yeah, and there was like, you know, four to 500 people the whole time here with us. It's like an auditorium full of people. There are enough people interested cool. in awakening. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad, uh, glad people showed up and um, hope we didn't confuse people too much, but it's not about hey, understanding, it's about, it's about instinct, you know? If, if you're confused, sit down and, and do this or get yeah. Angela's book. What, your website is simplyalwaysawake.com? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, that's where you can find a lot of the stuff. If you go to zdogmd.com, forward slash awakening hyphen explained. I put the link in here. You can actually see all our previous long form interviews with Angelo and have links to his book and his website and everything too. So if you want to go and it's a little bit in order, like, oh, here's what awakening is. Here's uh, how to use attention, different things like that. And then post awakening realization, which is a, that's a great show. Um, And man, I mean, like, look at like, there's so many comments I couldn't read because there's so many of them, but, and and I wanted to pay attention because when every time you talk, I'm just like, Okay, tell me more about that. <laughs> so, so next time we'll probably, we, we try to do it in person too because it's a lot of fun, but I, I like the live vibe. Any um, sort of parting vibe for people? Um, so I, I wanted to just point one thing out about doubt, that one of the first big barriers to this is just this fundamental doubt we have about ourselves, self-doubt. 
Um, now, again, if somebody's listening to this and it just sounds like total nonsense, that, that, I'm not really talking to you. I mean, I'm not trying to talk anyone into this at all. But if you resonate with it, if you resonate with this topic, and but yet you just find yourself doubting, like, okay, well, maybe it happened to other people, but I'm not sure it can happen to me. Just trust me, everyone has those thoughts. Every single person that walks this path has had all of those doubts. Oh, I don't know if it's going to happen to me. I'm probably not doing it right. I'm not motivated enough. I'm not dedicated enough. I don't understand it. I'm not Buddhist. I'm not whatever, right? Um, those are just those are just par for the course. It's fine. Those doubts don't prevent you from waking up. So that's the one thing I wanted to say about it. The other thing is, just so everyone here knows, after um, since you we did this series of what like six show, recorded shows, um, I can't even tell you how many people have contacted me who were going through awakening, had gone through awakening, very very profound awakenings. Many people. Um, some didn't even know what it was. Others were definitely dialed in and, and had, you know, read up on, on this process and understood it, but it happens to all kinds of people, young, old, you know, skeptical, non-skeptical scientists, scientific, non-scientific, uh, devotional people, super non-devotional, logical people. It, it just, it just can. So if it's, if it's really the most important thing to you, or it's like very, very compelling, dig in, like you have a right, it's your birthright. To, to live your, your undivided nature. Of course it is. Um, and if it's, again, if it's the, the silliest thing you've ever heard, there's plenty of, you know, great, great content on the internet or all kinds of things you can do with your life. Like this, this isn't necessarily something anyone in particular has to do, but, um, but it's there and it's, it's a real thing and it's continuing to happen more and more. So. Man. I, I, I've gotten so many messages too after our shows, people just like, I never knew what this was, exactly that. And some of these are like Harvard physicians who are like, I had this experience at 14 where this happened and you finally gave me context and the fact that you guys were both docs made it okay. Like I could like let go into it instead yeah. of like, oh, this is like some woo-woo nonsense. Scott Norick says, hey, bring on the second book, man. When's that coming out on post-awakening realization? Oh man, it, it takes a lot of time and focus to write these books. <laughs> Um, yeah. within, hopefully within the next two years. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. And uh, go check out your website. Um, Angela, stay on the line. I'll uh, wind up the show here. Dudes and dudettes, I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. Like in a way, the reason I ask him to come on is so that I get my, you know, my free session uh, while uh, getting to talk to you guys. But we're gonna do more and more of this as COVID continues interminably forever because it's kind of what's really important to me and we'll continue to do the other stuff too, but it's really important. So I appreciate that you guys are with us for this. Please leave your comments and your stories, um, message us, do all that. And I love you guys. Now let me figure out how to end the show. Let's see here, we are out. I wave and then as Bye. soon as I see Thanks myself- Thanks everyone for coming. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, it just really helps the algorithms to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I wanna hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is, 
Financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st- really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.